Joe Braxton's my man, and Woodsman's my game. Fuck with me. Bitch, send me to jail, motherfucker. Piece of push. Well, I don't take shit from nobody. I'm Mrs. Braxton's favorite son. Joe, baby. Joe motherfucking Braxton. And on the crying face emoji, I'm going to welcome you to episode 136 of GBW Podcast, because that's what Josh just did to me when I was trying to pay attention to his countdown. So, <laughs> well, it worked. Well, I guess so. Cue. I guess I did. So anyway, my name is Chris, and that guy is Josh, and you know us by now. Uh, what's new? Hey, they might be tuning in for the first time. If you are, Welcome. And go back yeah. and listen to the 135 episodes from before, because <laughs> you got lots and lots of catching up to do. Yes. Lots. So what's new? Nothing? Um, no, nothing's new. Nothing's Nothing. new. We're st- we're still just watching movies and recording on Skype. And I didn't think the world could get crazier, but it certainly has over the last few days. <laughs> That's true, and I'm gl- and right now I'm like. Maybe Justin Trudeau doesn't look so bad after all. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) And that's a weird thing to say as a Canadian. (laughs) He's all right. He's okay. All right. But anyway, we're here to talk about movies. So let's talk about movies. Of course, no topic as usual. Just what we've been watching. But again, a pretty hefty batch. And you're going to start. Not as usual. It's as usual for now. For now. Yeah, because there's just too many things to talk about that we've been watching. So, yeah. So why don't you start and tell us what the first thing is? Well, the first thing is another, the third entry in the Death Race franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm trying to get a move on some of these franchises that I started and then just didn't continue. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Death Race 3, Inferno. Um, <laughs> Were you on 20? fire by the time it was over? <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't know why it was called Inferno, to be honest. Hmm. But anyway, um, okay, from 2013, again directed by Roel Rene, um, who directed Death Race 2. Um, of course, this is the um, Jason Statham started a franchise. And... Um, not not connected, well, sort of connected with the original Corman uh, Paul Bartel movie, but uh, um, yeah, I, again, I um, kind of enjoying this this series so far. Um, this is again a prequel to the Jason Statham Death Race movie, uh, following up on Death Race Two, which was also a prequel. Spoiler alert, um, but not really. Um, but yeah, it's um, this one was pretty good still i I still enjoyed it it still had a lot of um a lot of good car action happening this time around there um the gang has moved to uh south africa where they're um basically this super rich guy named niles york played by doug ray scott has kind of taken out the taken over the uh death race franchise he's um basically the movie opens with him buying out ving rames 
and deciding that they're going to move Death Race off of Terminal Island and make it a global event and have Death Races all throughout the world. So the first one of these new Death Races is going to be in um, South Africa. Plus, so, it's also cheaper to film in South Africa. Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, um, Luke Goss is back as Carl Lucas, a.k.a. Frankenstein, and along for the ride is Danny Trejo again. And Fred Kohler, the uh, child from Mr. Mom, um, and Tanit Phoenix and her push-up bra. And uh, Robin Show is back as well um, as, I can't remember his character name. But anyway, they're all back and uh, with a new gang of uh, villains in the other cars, including Bart Fuchs as Razor, who's uh, um, just kind of a really uh, annoying, um, I think he was British or Irish, um, Jeremy Crutchley as a guy named Psycho, and our first female driver, Olga, played by Michelle Von Schaik. Um, so, okay, so this one started off, and I was like, ooh, it, it almost feels like a different director. Like, the last movie, I felt like I could follow the action pretty well, and, um, and I thought that it was actually really well directed for an action movie. And this director, as we've talked about last episode, he's known for action sequels. Um, but I felt like at the beginning that I was it was feeling a little more choppy, a little more of that kind of early 2000s, mid-2000s editing style that was like top, 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 flash, 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 flash. Um, so I was getting kind of annoyed. And then they don't open with a race. They open up with... Uh, they all go to South Africa, and then they have this... Uh, contest of the navigator so the navigators of course are all female and they have more of like the beginning of the last movie where it's a death match um, of all the female navigators fighting battling to de- determine which ones of them will actually participate in the race so I think they start with like 15 or something and they have to kill each other off till they get down to 10 which I thought was a great idea you know and a bunch of uh, uh, women in a death match because we haven't seen that before and um, they you know set up a number of them as these like you know, with these cool skills and stuff. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. No, it wasn't. It was a really poorly staged um, uh, fight scene, um, and this director definitely should be sticking to driving stunts and not hand-to-hand combat because uh, this this was not done well. So I was uh, feeling pretty worried as this thing got underway, but um, you know, it didn't take long for them to get onto the south african track and uh start doing the actual death race and um once it got into that it it settled into more of what the last one was like and i actually ended up enjoying the movie quite well um it was nice seeing some different terrain um you know part of my problem with the original death race when i first saw it was they were just kind of driving around this track at the at the prison and I thought it was kind of repetitive, but I have enjoyed it a lot more this time around. But it was nice to see um, the track opened up quite a bit into into like there's a you know scenes in deserts and sand dunes, and then they go through mountain passes, and they actually drive through small uh, kind of uh, poor towns in South Africa as well, which I thought was a kind of a cool twist on this. Um, so again, pretty pretty fun. Um, a lot of you know a lot of the characters were. Um, were, were cool. It was nice seeing a female driver. Um, now the villain, played by Doug Ray Scott, um, who you might know from like Mission 
Possible 2, and I think he was the lead in that Ever After movie with Drew Barrymore. He had a brief kind of run there in, I guess, like the 90s as a bit of a star, and then kind of, you know, went into these, like, action movies. And, you know, he was one of these very, very stock British annoying villain and uh, yeah he kind of drove me crazy I felt like it was a real lazy villain like even Lauren Cohen in the last one where had a little more tour whereas this guy was just a typical like swearing all the time overbearing sexist ass right and uh, you see so he kind of knew what was going to happen to him pretty early on um, but that that being said um, yeah more of the same um, probably not as good as the last one but this wasn't terrible either it was still a pretty good if you like car racing car stunt movies um this, this still had a lot going for it and i uh i still think it's a pretty good series i'm not super stoked about the next one because i believe luke goss is not back and he's been he's been a great lead in these um i know a few of the characters are back i think trejo's back i, I imagine fred kohler's back um but uh I don't know. I don't think Luke Goss is back, and I don't think Tanit Phoenix is back as well, who's uh, great to look at. And, uh, um, you know, she does have a little bit of depth to her character, but um, um, she's certainly, yeah, not not hard on the eyes. But, yeah, this is a fun little series. I'm still I'm still enjoying it so far. A uh, little worried about the next one, but, um, yeah, if, if you like Death Race 2, it's, you're probably going to like this one, too. It's Fight of the Navigators. Is that what you called it? Is that what it was called? I don't know. It was the Battle of the Navigator. I don't know what it was, but it was just like all these navigators in this battle. Just, I don't think I called it the Fight of the Navigators. Because I was like, Fight of the Navigators? Isn't that a movie with a kid who gets like picked up by aliens? <laughs> like, isn't that a Disney movie? <laughs> yeah, that's Flight of the Navigator. I know, but yeah, fight, I, fight of the Navigators would have been a funny uh, <laughs> name. I would have been down. Like, this, I thought that... The, that whole sequence was what could have been really cool. I don't know what happened, but it it uh, was not not well done, and it was very quick. And but it was one of those one of those fight scenes where you just don't even know what's going on. Like they introduce oh, like 15 characters at once, and then they're all fighting, and you don't even know who's who, and then it's over, and you're just like, what? Like there was no real tension. Like uh, of course Tanit Phoenix isn't gonna get killed, obviously, and then the rest of them you've just met them, so you don't really care, right? So it's just kind of a wasted opportunity that sequence i think that could have been really cool but uh anyway at least they tried something different i guess and oh danny many... trejo danny trejo gets some action in this movie i don't think i've ever seen that has he maybe in the maybe as machete or something he got action but, in uh, badass did, did he yeah yeah with young girl who has the son right this was this was a little more dirty action so uh, anyway, it was good to see Danny. <laughs> you're just like, all right, Danny Trail, you fucking high fiving him. Yeah, you're doing it, buddy. <laughs> you are a Mexican. Yeah, this... <laughs> <laughs> this had some good, and I had some nice surprises too, like the last one as well. So yeah, I, I'd recommend this, but just, uh, just if it if it starts off poor, don't worry, it gets better. How many are there? Five. Well, there's kind of it's weird because there's four in this particular series but then there's of course death race 2000 and then there's that other one that corman did which was, a, was it 2050 which was not good and then there was also death sport which uh, with uh, david carradine which was sort of a sequel but anyway i i kind of look at these ones as kind of a self-contained franchise 
Okay. I, you know, I'm, I know this has ties to Death Race 2000, but I kind of feel that this is like a completely separate thing. So you only have one left. One left, oh, yeah, okay. in this one. All right, well, let's keep with the number threes because mm-hmm. I watched Best of the Best three. No turning oh, back. Yeah. All right. From 1995. And this was the movie where Philip Ree, who's co-starred and co-produced and co-written the first three movies, takes over as the lead in the series from Eric Roberts. And it's also the first time he's directed a movie. So, you know, not sure how you should feel about an action star directing a movie because we saw how that panned out in the past. But I'll assure you, it's okay here. It, it's fine here. Don't worry about it. So... This one's weird because this series is a friggin' anomaly because the first series is a triumphant sports rah, 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 America fighting nasty North Korean movie. Right. And then the second one is more of a tournament movie like Bloodsport where they're in Vegas fighting and Wade Newton's there going, yes, you love it. Right. Like I said last episode, this one is a Philip Ree taking on white supremacists movie, basically. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is like, this movie starts with the, this calm country day, you know, it's showing the fields and the farms and, you know, it's sunny out and there's birds and little black kid playing out in the woods, like in the fields and having fun. And then a church gets burnt down. I'm like, okay. That's what we're going to do right here, hey? We're going to have a bunch of guys just go up to this church, which is run by a black uh, black preacher, and we're going to burn this church down. So, yeah, okay, that's that's what we're doing. Then into the picture comes D. Wallace, who I mentioned from Critter's Attack last week, who I like, but doesn't get utilized that well in a lot of movies, to be honest, after oh. The Howling, probably, and Cujo. Um, so she's the mom to this kind of like slacker type kid called Owen played by this actor, Peter Simmons. And then also in this town, we have Gina Gershon playing the innocent teacher at the local school. So she's, she's the mom of this Owen kid who decides this Owen kid's like, I'm bored being in this town. I'm going to join the Aryan nation in this town. I'm going to become a skinhead basically. So this happens. So, you know, there's all these, you know, they come to the schoolyard and Gina Gershon sees the, all these ne- these racial slurs spray painted on the side of the school. And they're just like, this is not good. We can't have this in our town. And then there's this like pretty great scene where it intercuts between um, the choir singing in a church and then the reverend who's been kidnapped basically being beaten to death by the skinheads. And it's a pretty like for a guy who's an action guy who's not directed a movie before. It's a pretty great moment because I love it when movies like intercut like something that's jubilant with something that's violent. Like Mm. I just I think that when that's done properly, it really works. And it actually really worked in this movie. I was quite impressed with the skill that he pulled that off in this. So I was like, whoa, this is like a third entry. It's a low but lower budgeted action movie. He pulled that off. And then into the picture does come Philip Ree because he just drifts into town. The town's called Liberty. What a surprise. You got skinheads <laughs> and it's called Liberty to visit his sister who's married a white guy in town. 
played by uh, Christopher McDonald, who, if you've seen any B-movies, you know who he is. He took over for Robert De Niro in those Midnight Run sequels in the in the 90s. And he was in, uh, I think he was the bad guy in Happy Gilmore with Adam Sandler. Yeah, Shooter. Yeah, Shooter, Shooter. McGavin, or whatever his name was. Yeah, so he's in this, too, as, like, the, the sheriff slash wife of Philip Bree's character's or husband, sorry, of Philip Bree's character's sister. So from there, he comes into town. He He's caught up to speed on these white supremacists being in town, and it becomes a battle between Philip Bree, who's our Asian hero, against skinheads, basically. That's what the rest of the movie is, is Philip Bree taking on skinheads. And it's got your typical stuff. It's got, like, he first comes into town. He goes to the diner. He's confronted by... A bunch of skinheads who are like, what are you doing here, boy? And then he beats them up, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we're introduced to the to the leader of the Aryans, played by Arlie Ermey from Full Metal Jacket, amongst oh, yeah. other things. He's the leader. And then, you know, the movie I'm like, I'm watching. I'm like, OK, we're about like half an hour into this thing. And there's like not being that much action. And I'm surprised because I'm like, this really is way more serious than the third part in a low-budget action series should be. Because it's got all that racist, like, skinheads, let's get over, go after the skinheads kind of theme. And I'm like, yeah, that's been done in action movies before, but this one's taking it way more seriously than a lot of those other movies tended to, I think. Right, Like, okay. like this isn't Graydon Clark's skinheads from 1988 or something like that. Like, this is trying to actually have a plot. Like, it's really working on having a a compelling plot for the first third of the movie. And I'm like, okay, I appreciate that. But then of course this being a best of the best movie, the action does have to show up eventually. I mean, Philip Reese, he's a martial artist. You got to do it. That's what people paid admission to see this movie. Right? So again, he beats on some mask guys, you know, who he kicks one through a fruit stand. Cause in these movies, fruit stands are never safe. Um, he he does the same thing at this fair. There's a scene where he's at a at the town fair, like you know how they have like in small towns they always have those town fairs. He's at the town fair dressed as a clown because he's volunteering at the dunk tank and he fights a bunch of neo Nazis dressed in a clown suit. Nice with the big floppy shoes and the clown <laughs> mows and everything, and it's pretty fucking glorious. I gotta say, like I'm like. Any guy who's like you wouldn't see Seagal doing this if he was in a movie that he starred in and directed. He wouldn't be willing to like poke nope. fun of himself <laughs> by being in a clown outfit. And Philip Reeves like, fuck yeah, I'll, I'll beat him up in a clown suit. Why not? What the hell, right? And then the end is just kind of like his character, along with like Gina Gershon, who's kind of there as like the sort of love interest. I mean, I mostly remember her from like what is it, Bound? She was in with Jennifer Tillis. And showgirls, yeah. Like, I remember her in those, but I'm, like, surprised to see her. And she's just kind of, like, the love interest. And then it's just Re in the finale basically assaulting the white power compound, which is filled with pasty, shirtless skinheads running obstacle courses for a good portion of the movie. Like, it's like the training montage in action movies, but it's these pasty, skinny, 
white guys running obstacle courses saying how much they hate black people basically that's really they have an obstacle course in their compound they fucking have an obstacle course in their in their Aryan nation compound so they can be limber when they're like lynching people i guess i don't know oh that sounds so fun i want to go play in it (laughs) yeah you want to play in it except for the like extreme racism part yeah, 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 it could do without that, but obstacle courses are fun. So, so basically, this is just a, it's kind of like a standard '90s action movie that's actually quite well directed, like I said. And him taking over the lead in this series is actually a pretty good. He's like, he's actually a really decent action hero in this. And you know, and the finale has like tons of explosions. So, and 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 white supremacists getting what they deserve. So, I'm okay with that. This is another solid entry in this series. So, like, this series is three for three for me. Wow. So who knew we'd be praising the best of the best and the Death Race series? Who knew? So, uh, <laughs> one more to go in this series too. Um, but I'm getting a sneaky suspicion that Part Four is going to be the least because. I saw these way back in VHS days, and I remember not liking four. So we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, right. uh, best of the best three, no turning back. Surprisingly, um, distributed by Miramax of all companies. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. It's a weird decision. Like, it should have been on, like, their Dimension label or something. But it was yeah. just a flat-out Miramax release. I'm like, the guys who put out Shakespeare and Love put out best of the best three? <laughs> but then I remember they also put out all the Children of the Corn sequels, so yeah, fuck that. <laughs> wow, well, I'll be picking up this series. It sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, you can get the set, like a UK Blu-ray, like I said, for like under 20 bucks or close to 20 bucks. So it's it's nice. no special features, but these movies are fun so far. Yeah, yeah, right on. Right on. That sounds like the, the best one so far. Uh, I think I'd probably still say the first one's the best, but that's because I love like sports triumphant sports movies but i mean they've all three of them have been so different from one another but Mm -hmm. they've still all worked so that's kind of like when series do this it usually doesn't pan out but it's it's worked in this series for some reason nice so cool all right um okay so this one um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just because i'm a completionist i needed to watch this and oh uh, god it's not lake placid is it no no <laughs> no we've already gone through those okay. but, oh i do have one more lake placid i gotta get through um okay so this one it was it was on a double feature that i had already watched the first one of the movies on the double feature so i'm like well i better watch the other one and i admittedly watched about half of this and then was too tired and i actually had to rewatch the first half all over again (laughs) and that's because it was very confusing so this is not a tired movie okay just don't put this on at 11 30 at night when you're kind of half tired or you're never gonna make it but anyway it's a movie called millennium from 1989 Uh, okay yeah 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 directed by michael anderson who has a very um uh, his, his career is all over the place. He did like the Around the World in 80 Days back in the I think the 60s. He did Logan's Run, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. He then he did Orca the Killer Whale, and he's done this. So uh, all over the place. Um, okay, so the movie opens with this like insane plane crash. Like I've never seen a plane crash. I, this might be the craziest plane crash I've ever seen on film. So I was pretty impressed 
going into that. And then um, we're introduced to Chris Christopherson, who's this um, airline crash investigator dude. He's going goes in after a crash happens to try and figure out what happened. And uh, before you know it, he's uh, introduced to Maury Chaikin and Al Waxman in the same scene. So you know it was probably shot in Canada. Oh, it was no shot in Canada. No way. <laughs> and um, they figure out they figure out that um, um, that the victims' watches that they found after, at the crash site were all going backwards. So you know something weird sci-fi is going on here. Can I just ask, was was Gordon Pinson and Michael Ironside in this too? Because then you know it's Canadian. <laughs> they weren't. But Murray Jacob and Al Waxman, you always also know it's Canadian. <laughs> Have you seen this movie, by the way? I saw it on VHS, but I don't remember a damn thing about it. Okay. This is on a double feature with Ro- Rotor, right? R-O-T-O-R? Yes, it is. Okay. okay. So then I'm like, okay. So then, okay, this is... So, you know, so far, so good. Cool prank, plane crash. Chris Christopherson um, as an investigator. Um, I was, you know, curious what happened. And the plane crash, like what happened in the plane crash was a, um, a plane was flying and another plane landed on top of it in the air. And then they both crashed. And it was pretty crazy. Crash. Those planes wanted to get fucking funky. They were trying <laughs> to do it. <laughs> <laughs> They were, but it didn't end well. <laughs> okay, so then we're then we're introduced to Cheryl Ladd. Cheryl Ladd shows up, and um, she's just kind of there and hanging around, and um, she's like dressed as a stewardess, and then she ends up meeting up with, or basically seducing Chris Christopherson and uh, bringing him back to her hotel. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So far, so good. You know, Cheryl Ladd's usually pretty reliable as well. And um, you know, there's she, she's acting she's acting a bit off, and uh, he has this great line. He's uh, he says, um, "You're right up there on my top on the top ten of my weird list, lady," which I I thought was an awesome line. Um, but yeah, they're kind of starting this relationship, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it cuts to like three thousand years into the future, and we meet Cheryl at again in the future, and she's got this like punky kind of spiky blonde hairdo and I'm like oh she looks really good kind of a, as a punky chick that's the only and image I remember from this yeah and then and then we, we learn that she's from the future and um, it's a time travel movie okay so what, what they're trying to do is um, and I might throw out some spoilers here but I really don't feel like a lot of people are gonna you know stumble across this and be like damn it damn it josh why did you spoil that for me so um if you if you do think that's going to happen then please turn me off and uh, come back in five minutes um sorry chris you, well, you've seen it before so it's nothing i'm not going to anyway. watch it again don't worry about it <laughs> okay so basically what 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 happens is there's the future is like very like desolate and you know run down it's one of those kind of like you know a the, you know, the worst case post-apocalyptic scenario where everything's kind of shitty and everything's falling apart and rusty and the people in the future have figured out that what they what, to kind of rekindle their world they're going to go back into the past and stage plane crashes so what they do is they figure out a plane's going to crash and then before the crash happens they kind of time travel there and mount and they, it <laughs> no <laughs> They time travel there, and then they replace the 
the victims. They pull the people that are going to die off the plane and basically kidnap them and then replace them with kind of like um, dummies, like fake, <laughs> like, 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 like uh, stand in corpses. Okay. So that's it's like fucking so, mannequins. <laughs> yeah. Like, like mannequins, but they look like people, right? Like they still, their sex dolls. <laughs> no, but they're like flesh and blood. So like when the crash happens, these, these, replacements like they still get their arms torn off and everything like that but the real people have been brought into the future so they can start a new society against their will i guess anyway it's not super explained well but uh that's kind of what the deal is and then the rest of the movie is lad um kind of having to she keeps kind of fucking up this this time travel stuff and has to keep going back to fix things like, you know, a lot of time travel movies have this thing where you, they, you know, you screw something up, then you have to go back further to do something else to make sure that this other yeah. thing happens. So it's a lot of that stuff going on. Um, I did kind of like that, though. Like, um, I do like time travel movies, but I do find they can be confusing, which is why I say don't watch this when you're tired, because uh, you do kind of really need to be paying attention to what's happening. And, you know, it's one of those movies where, like, you know, like, there's that whole sequence where she, like, is in the airport or in the um, crash site and when she first meets Christopherson and when she seduces him and goes back to his hotel. Like, we see that happen, and then we see it happen, like, 20 minutes later from a completely different camera angle because it's from her perspective. And I, I like stuff like that where you're basically seeing entire sequences shown a different way from a different perspective and i thought that was pretty cool um lad's performance she's got kind of like this fish out of water thing because obviously she's from the future so like you know she's discovering a lot of things for the first time like what it's like to eat a piece of celery not that that's very exciting and even even like kissing christopherson like that's new to her right so i kind of like that stuff um Robert Joy shows up. Um, Robert Joy, if you don't know him, he's a great character actor. He's been in lots and lots of stuff. A lot of people would probably know him as Sid the Mortician in CSI New York. And he was also Jim in Desperately Seeking Susan, which is an 80s movie I really like. Uh, Lloyd Bachner and Lawrence Dane show up. Uh, Lawrence Dane was in Rituals. Uh, Peter Dvorsky, that Jeffrey Combs doppelganger from uh, The Park is Mine, he shows up. Um, and, you know, I think what's happened here is the writer, John Varley, is on record saying that he thinks this movie lost its way. I think this is one of those movies that like sounded like a good idea. Something happened. It went into development hell. Four different directors later, probably 18 different rewrites, this movie finally ended up getting made. That being said, you know, when I watched this when I was alert, I actually thought it was pretty interesting. Like, you know, I thought there was a lot of interesting ideas happening here. Um, but, you know, it did feel like something was kind of missing, and I could see why someone would hate this movie. But I, I thought there were some pretty neat ideas happening here, a lot more than I was expecting, especially when I would watched it when I was tired. I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. But on the second watch, it was actually pretty good, and it's certainly better than fucking ROTOR, which was a shit show, right? So it actually, you know, what that first time I was watching, I'm like, okay, this thing's so piecing out, you know, and I know it's out of print, I'll probably get some money for it, but now I'm kind of like, you know what, I might actually watch this one again in the future. Um, it w- wasn't bad, but I, I, I definitely know that this is a divisive movie. Yeah. Uh, 
I think people either love it or hate it. Um, well, I, I don't know if I would say either for me, but I, I certainly think it was interesting enough to maybe take another look, you know, a few years from now. So, yeah. But it's pretty, like, not, I don't, I'd never really heard of this until it came out on this on this uh, double disc from uh, Show Factory. I don't remember hating it when I saw it on VHS, but like I said, I don't remember anything about it either so i just remember her punk haircut like you said and wasn't there like some like androids in it or something that had like square faces or something yeah that's who robert joy plays and actually he he is um the makeup on that it was kind of like like the tin man mixed with like andy kaufman and heartbeeps you know okay so i thought the makeup was actually pretty cool on on the character robert joy was playing um, so I did like the Android quite a bit, even though, you know, it, it kind of felt like a throw in because he always had those like he always had the like kind of smarmy quips that he that androids always seem to have in these movies. Um, but I, he, he that guy always does a good job. Uh, but yeah, he, that was certainly a memorable character. Sherman, the android. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd say take a look at this, but I, I, I wouldn't go pay top dollar for the out of print Blu-ray now. But uh I think if you can get your hands on it, or if you see it on streaming, it's it's worth a look if you like time travel. Yeah, it might be on like sh- it might be on like Show Factory TV's streaming yeah. service or Tubi or something. Yeah, but yeah, definitely don't, don't pay the why, money for the Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't know why Screen Factory is putting so many things out of print right now, um, but I you know I've noticed this year in particular, like a lot of titles are going out of print, and uh, and this is one. Them. So it'll be interesting to see if they keep some of these titles on Show Factory TV, because that would be great if they did. Um, but uh, I don't know if they're losing the rights. They might just be losing the rights. But uh, um, it's worth a look for sure. If you like time travel movies, worth a, worth a peek. But I wouldn't go out of my way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and if you like Cheryl Ladd too, with a punky haircut. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's Millennium from 1989. Okay, well, let, let's go to a new release. Uh, let's go to a 2020 movie. And it's a movie that I was somewhat curious about because it's uh, it's another one of those horror movies that wants to be a throwback to the 80s. So I'm like, okay, I'll give it a chance, whatever. Um, it's a movie called We Summon the Darkness, directed by <laughs> Mark Myers, who last did My Friend Dahmer based on the uh, Durf Backman graphic novel which i've heard is a pretty good movie um, and i you keep going back to these hoping and i i just never feel like it ends well <laughs> that's your you know what that's the exact thing it doesn't end well <laughs> this you, you know our complaints about modern horror movies right like you and i both have the same complaint yeah. movies that are decent for the first two thirds then shit the bed in the last third yeah that's what We Summon the Darkness does. This is like all those other horror movies we've talked about that are newer ones where we're like, we're into it, and then something happens that throws it off track for us. Yeah. And that's what this one does too. So this movie starts off, it's set in 1988, and it has these three girlfriends who are on a road trip. They're like these heavy metal type chicks, and they're on a road trip to go see this like, you know, this band at this concert, like there's supposed to be like this satanic band or whatever. And, they're, you know, we're going to go see this metal band. And, you know, early in the movie, they're in a convenience store and we see footage of Johnny Knoxville playing a preacher on the TV talking about the evils of heavy metal. And I'm like, 
I saw Ozzy do the same thing in Trick or Treat in 1986. <laughs> you know, I, I get what you're doing. Like, yeah, in the 80s, everyone thought heavy metal was evil, blah, 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 satanic. I get it. I know what you're doing. But I'm just like, okay, whatever. I, I Whatever. Like you put Johnny Knoxville. flag. Yeah, Johnny Knoxville's your flag. first red flag? Okay. So then they get to the concert, and they end up, like, hooking up with these three metal dudes, like, who are in their van, they're smoking pot, they're drinking beer, it's the usual shit. And, and the reason they they kind of meet up with these guys is because while they were driving, someone threw a chocolate milkshake onto their windshield and almost made them crash, and it turns out it was these dudes. So they go to get revenge on them by throwing some firecrackers into their van, and they end up, like, befriending one another and being like, oh, let's hang out at the concert. Well, it'll be fun, whatever, right? And it's got that bro talk like, oh, man, what was your first concert? Oh, I saw Ronnie James Dio in 1985. And, like, I saw Motley Crue and all that, you know, like that that mm-hmm. poser, like, you drop the names to make you make these 20-year-old actors who don't even have any fucking idea who these bands probably are to make it like they have cred in 1988, basically, right? right. Like, yeah, yeah. in 1988, you had probably already seen Motley Crue by then, you know? Mm-hmm. like, But, like, these people, these actors, I'm like, they probably don't even fucking know who Motley Crue are, probably. They just maybe know, like, one song or something, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, OK, whatever. Fine. I, I'm willing to suspend my belief on this because it's a fucking movie. I'm not going to nitpick about something like that. I get it. Um, the thing I am going to nitpick about is that when they go into the concert and it shows them all jamming out at the concert, they use a fucking Merciful Fate song as the song the band is playing. Really? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, come on now. Like, you're using... A friggin' Merciful Fate song to try and make your band satanic, and I'm like, well, I guess somebody had to give them the rights for something. So I guess Merciful, like I guess King Diamond was like, okay, use my song in your in your movie or something. So, so he I wasn't was not on stage. No, it was like these guys pretending to play a Merciful Fate song. Oh my god. Okay. And I'm like, I'm like, if you know Merciful Fate, you know they're pretty rad. But I'm just like, mm-hmm. I I don't understand. But I'm like, okay. Again, here's Chris nitpicking because I'm a I grew up a metal fan. I'm gonna nitpick. It's just something that happened. I nitpick on that too. So after the concert, you know, they're like the main girl, uh, Alexis, played by Alexandra Daddario, who's been in uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, you know who she is. I I think she was in something you'd seen recently, but I can't remember what it was. She but, was in the the um. The one with the rock, the fucking, uh, the one about San Andreas. San Andreas. Yeah, San Andreas. Yeah, she was in that. I think she, was she the, the daughter, in that. Yeah. Oh. Okay. She's been. She was in Baywatch too. Yeah. Yeah, she was in Baywatch. Yeah, that's right. So she's the main girl, and she says to the guys, "Hey, why don't we keep this party going? We can go to my dad's house, and we can continue to party." So, you know, obviously his house is off in the middle of nowhere. It's a fancy, fancy house. They all go in there. They continue their partying. And then it becomes a horror movie because there's... I don't really want to talk a lot more about the twist, like the movie plot, because there's twists in it. But, you know, eventually peace, people become victims. There's 
there's evil undertones to it, like satanic undertones to it. But then there's a multiple twist later in the movie that goes in with everything. I don't want to say much because I don't really okay. want to spoil the twists. Let's just say it becomes a horror movie when they go back to this house to party, you okay. know. Um, and then, you know, I guess I'll have to do a slight spoiler because I can't talk about the rest of it without a slight spoiler. It turns out that the girls are have kidnapped the guys that are victimizing them. That's basically all I'm going to say. Because okay. it's it's just the girls turn out to be evil, as it were, and, you know, victimizing the guys. Which gives them a chance to, like, you know, they drug the guys' drinks, and they berate them as they pass out, and then it becomes a horror movie, so on and so forth, rinse, repeat. But then there's another twist later, which I won't talk about. Just know there is one. Um, so... This is the thing. Like, I was enjoying this movie up to a point. The first twist, like, the thing with making the girls the villains of the piece, I was fine with that. I was like, okay, that's that's okay. It's the second twist that derailed this movie for me, which I can't talk about. So this is a hard movie to kind of talk about and give my true feelings about it because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, right? Yeah. But, um... Up to the point where that second twist happens, I was enjoying myself because I was like, um, D'Addario in the lead, I thought she fucking owned this movie. Like, she was so good in this. Like, she was so fucking cocky and she was such an evil bitch through the first part of this movie that I loved her in this. Like, I was like, she was really good in this, you know? And I was like, I, I know I kind of noticed her from other things, but this is the first time I ever was like, oh, she can carry a movie, you know, like she really carried this movie really well. And, you know, and of course, to notice her, but um, is she, um, do you buy her as a metalhead? Kind of a little bit iffy on that. Hmm. Like they gave her the leather jacket and the, you know, all that stuff. I, I, I was kind of iffy on it. Like I didn't not buy it, but I also kind of felt it was a little poserish. But then I had thought to that point, because this movie was trying to be set in 88 and it had a young cast that it was being poserish to begin with. So I was willing to overlook that a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I have seen people online berating this movie saying, these aren't proper metalheads. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not one of those fucking douche metal fans. who's like, oh, if it's not 100% accurate, if they don't have their fucking tongue split in two and they don't have patches on the back of their jackets, say fucking maiden and stuff, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to do that. You know, yeah. I'm just there for the ride. So she's the owns this movie. Um, there's an actress called uh, what's her name here? Sorry, Amy Forsyth, who plays Bev, who's the one girl who's kind of hesitant. You know how there's always one girl who's just like, I don't know if we should do this kind of thing. Like she's pretty good in this, too. Like everything is everyone is pretty solid in what they're doing. Um, there's some pretty good like comedy like goofy humor at times like there's a scene where one of the girls tries to bust in a door that the guys are hiding behind and she's trying to do it like she has this enthusiasm that she's like let me get this door but she does it so badly like when she slams in the door she just is so awkward at doing it but you can't help but laugh because she's so amped to actually bust the door down that i thought it was Mm. pretty funny um Mm. and it's just like it just had this goofy tone going on like you know, just like all these like goofy tones about heavy metal, about Satanism and, you know, all that stuff. And just the girls being like really sarcastic to about everything. And I'm like, I'm kind of enjoying this. But then once this comedy 
evaporates from the movie. Like the last third, that comedic tone pretty much evaporates from the movie. And it be and, and a lot of it is just creeping around in the dark. I'm just like, I'm out. I'm totally fucking out right now. Like they staged the movie to be kind of a horror comedy, a metal based horror comedy for the first two thirds. And it worked fine because the acting was good and I was having some fun with it. But then that last third was so goddamn disappointing that I find it very difficult to to recommend this to anyone but like the most hardcore horror fans, to be honest. And even then, I don't know how satisfied they're going to be with this. Yeah, really. But Daddario, fucking great. Like she's the definitely the best thing in this. And like you said, not too hard on the eyes either. So, but she does a gives a really great performance in this, and I thought all the girls were great. But it's just, it's one of those movies where you go into it, you don't know what you're expecting, you're enjoying yourself, and then by the end you're like, "Fuck, that could have been so much better." It's one of those movies. Yeah, I just I'm just getting so like jaded on these new horror movies, like. That's why I'm just I don't even bother most of the time anymore. Well, I'm guess, it's just I'm, always a letdown, you know. I'm just jaded on the ones that are like trying to be retro, because I feel like they don't fully understand that you're never going to recapture the spirit of '80s cinema using a digital movie camera and like some props you found at a thrift store. It's just not the same. Yeah. So. But I, I'm not going to say I disliked it completely. Like, there are some things in this that were enjoyable, but I'm just going to say tread with caution. Like, if you're a hardcore horror fan, then give it a shot. But if you're kind of one of those casual horror viewers, you're, you don't really need to watch We Summon the Darkness, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was curious about it, but uh, no, no, not so much. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. Netflix. If it comes on Netflix, I'll watch it. Yeah, I, I paid pay for it. I, I rented it for like three bucks because it was on sale on uh, Google or something. So I, I just wanted to check it out. So I was like three bucks. I'd yeah. rather pay the three bucks to rent it than pay the 15 bucks to buy the Blu-ray or whatever in a case yeah. like this where I'm unsure of myself. So I don't feel like I was ripped off of the money I paid to see it, but I just feel like it could have been better than it actually turned out to be. And so that was kind of a bummer. Yeah, too bad. So. All right. Well, um, okay. <laughs> I was looking for something short one night, and um, <laughs> I decided to give this one a go because I've been a bit curious about it, but I've also been like, oh, God, this could be terrible. And um, anyway, that's a movie called The Devil's Carnival from 2012, um, directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman, who, of course, did uh, Saw 2 to 4. And also did uh, Repo the Genetic Opera, which is a um, movie that, um, yeah, again, kind of divisive. Um, I think people either really like it or don't get it and don't like it. Uh, but again, I was I just don't really remember it. I just remember it had a great cast. Um, um, you know, like I know Nivik Ogre from Skinny Puppy was in it. I know Bill Mosley was in it. And, and Paris um, Hilton was in it. <laughs> was Paris Hilton in Repo? I think yeah. she's in Repo, yeah. Yeah, but I remember it was an interesting idea, like a kind of a musical horror movie. And uh, and I like it when people try something different. So there you go. Anyway, this time around, this one's only um, it's under an hour. And uh, oh. it's 
it's the same idea. It's, it's a musical horror movie, um, um, and it's about this carnival, um, like a carnival complete with, it's like a circus with a sideshow and all that stuff. And the movie opens with these three characters. One of them is suicidal. Uh, this guy played by Sean Patrick Flannery from uh, Boondock Saints and um, Outer. Um, this woman um, who um, looks like she's stealing something and is in tr- trying to you know, pull a scam or something. Named Mrs. Marywood, played by Brianna Evigan from um, Step Up to the Streets and uh, Burning Bright, which is a great little... Yeah, great little uh, enclosed horror movie about a killer tiger. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Burning Bright. Yeah, and uh, the third one is uh, is uh, uh, this woman named Tamara, who it looks like is is getting the shit kicked out of her by her boyfriend, or is like under threat of her abusive boyfriend. So I don't really know why she ends up in hell. But anyway, she's played by Jessica Loun- Loudness. Um, who was in um, Autopsy, and she was also in the 90210 reboot. So the idea is these three characters, for whatever reason, have been taken to this Devil's Carnival, which is a.k.a. Hell, and um, they're there, and they're they're kind of judged by um, having to sort of participate in a in a famous fable, like um, like an Aesop fable, or another famous fable, and. Uh, so I thought it was a kind of a unique idea, and then like you know when, the, when we're introduced to the Devil's Carnival, there's a big musical number and you know sexy clowns and you know all these like kind of carnival freaks running around singing and dancing and stuff. And I thought it was pretty neat. And again, I give Bowsman props for like trying something different that's decidedly uncommercial, which I, I always admire. Um, and then you know as we're going through these these things, you know I. I thought some of the like I thought the three leads were good. Sean Patrick Flannery is usually pretty good. I thought the other two were good as well. Um, there was this like kind of Elvis type guy who um, was one of the sideshow people played by Mark Sentner. I thought he was really good. The makeup was great. The costumes were awesome. The set design was really cool. So it looked really cool. Um, songs were by Terrace Zadunich and Bowsman and they of course collaborated on Repo um, but the problem was is that there wasn't really a story like I didn't really like we're introduced to these three characters very quickly we're not really given a backstory we don't really care like there's no reason to really care about them where they're each given their little segment and basically the segments all consist of like you know, a, a bit of dialogue and then some sort of, you know, standout song, and then that moves on to the next segment. Uh, like, a lot of the problem here is if you don't like the song, the segment kind of dies, right? Because <laughs> it, it's a full-on, like, five to seven minute performance, mm-hmm. oftentimes by one or two characters. And I didn't really like the music in this. I was kind of like, oh, this is, you know, kind of boring, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, which I shouldn't have been, considering all the colorful stuff that's going on and all the interesting things to look at and all the interesting sort of side characters. I thought this would be way cooler. Like, especially when the sexy clowns came out at the beginning, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, it's going to be act like an actual sideshow. But no, it, it kind of delved into these songs. Like, one of the ones in particular that bothered me was there was this hobo clown 
but he was played by Ivan Moody, who's the lead singer of a band called Five Finger Death Punch, who are terrible in my yes, opinion. Yes, they're ter- they're terrible. They're terrible. So when his song comes up, it was like just grinding halt, and I'm just like, oh. And then I'm like, I don't really get why this, how this ties in. I don't really care. Um, so it's just again another one of these like style over substance movies where it's you know it's got a lot. Bowsen's obviously a gifted director. He he can make a big spectacle. He can shoot things well. He can make things look really great. But there's nothing really there for me to like kind of hold on to. Um, even when you throw in all these, you know, we've got all these side characters, um, all these kind of supporting characters. We've got Dayton Callie, who was the sheriff on Sons of Anarchy. He's like the ticket booth guy, and he was great, but again, just kind of pops in and out. Ogre's back, Bill Mosley's back, Alexa Vega from, um, I think she was in the Spy Kids movies, and that was in one of the Machete movies. Paul Servino, that's never a good sign, but he's there. And, um, but yeah, just, it, you know, I, I was struggling to, like, make sense of what was going on. Um, you know, like, I, I, it was kind of neat that they were tying in these fables, but I didn't really understand how the fable pertained to the character. I had not, no, like, knowledge of the characters, so I didn't really give a shit what happened to them. Um, yeah, it was just kind of disappointing in that way. Um, now, I know Bowsman said that this was the first of a series, and I know there is a sequel to this called, uh, I can't remember what the title is, but it's Alucarda or something, The Devil's Carnival. And um, that's also on, um, I watched this on Amazon Prime, that's also on there, and that's longer, it's 90 minutes. But the problem is, when you've kind of given me a, a 60 minute movie that's kind of a drag, I'm probably not going to watch the 90 minute version, you know what I mean? And I'm curious, because it looked cool, so if I can go into it just thinking, okay, this is just going to be a bit of a spectacle and look cool, then maybe I will. But man, as far as the story goes, like there's nothing here. Like I, I in my opinion, I felt like there was nothing going on, and it was too bad because I just think it it was well done. Um, yeah. Now I think part of this too is I know when this was released, at least in LA, they had kind of an experience around around it. Like when you went to a screening in a theater of this movie they had an actual sideshow there like it was a full-on like william castle type experience where you'd go and there'd be this whole thing and then you'd go in and watch the movie and the actors would be there like i could see in that setting this would be pretty neat but um without that and just kind of clicking on it on amazon prime at 11 o'clock at night yeah i, I the experience wasn't there and it kind of fell flat so but anyway, I was curious. I've been curious for a while, and uh, Bowsman seems to be doing a lot of this kind of stuff, and uh, I kind of wish he'd just go back to straight horror in a way. I mean, I know he's good at it, and I know he did that. Uh, he did a, another experience in L.A. of one of those immersive horror things, and I, I do think he's... wish it was just a song you know with 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 um with equal numbers like that'd be kind of cool but like trying to like tie in these tables and stuff like too much bad sorry darren I, I think this movie, what it needed was Philip Reed to show up in his clown suit from Best of the Best 3 and beat up Ivan <laughs> Moody. I think that's what this needed. It needed, it just needed a story, man, is what it needed. <laughs> well, Bowsman yeah. did do the upcoming Saw movie with 
Chris Rock at least. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know he was directing. So, that. so he is directing that. So you never know. Like, he's a weird one. Like, I've never watched Repo just because I thought it not something that would be of interest to me particularly. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, he, I watched it. I just don't remember it at all. Like, but I don't it, remember anything about it. Well, kudos for trying something different, at least I guess. Yeah, you gotta give someone props for like a musical in this genre. So. It's pretty impressive to try it. I just wish the song, songs were better too, right? But um, but yeah, that that hobo clown just killed it. <laughs> that was about the halfway point, and I was like, then I looked the guy. I'm like, why would you, why would you put this guy up there with like ogre? Like I don't know. But. Sometimes I wish that Ivan Moody was a hobo. Then we wouldn't have to listen to his fucking terrible music anymore. <laughs> yeah, I I I heard the name. name. I've never heard them. And I checked them out after, and oh yeah, it's just that that terrible new metal stuff, right? Well, that new metal stuff with the America, 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 troops, mm. America. Right. Like, I'll kick your ass, but then I'm gonna support the troops. It's just so yeah. so lame. So yeah. lame. All right. Well, <laughs> that was what the Devil's Carnival. Yeah. So <laughs> the the lead song was the lead song was catchy. I have thought of it a few times. Well, A for effort. <laughs> A for effort, D for execution. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, you remember fad movies, Josh? <laughs> yes. You know, I, just you know. spent, I just spent a lot of money on a fad movie. What fad movie is that? You spent a lot of money on it, too, as did Michelle. Oh, <laughs> that movie. That's because yeah. it's fucking rad. We were all victims of the vinegar syndrome sale. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, well, anyway, let's talk about another extreme sports fad movie, Josh. Because I decided that I was going to rewatch 1986's Thrashing. Ah. So, you know, I'm just like, what's well, a fad movie I can watch? Because I just bought Rad on 4K for Christ's sake for like 40 bucks. What's a fad movie I can watch to get myself ready for some rad? And I was like, I saw Thrashing sitting there. I was like, okay, it's been a while. Let's give it a swirl. I forgot that Josh Brolin's the lead in this movie, for starters. Yeah. I think it's only his second movie credit. And uh, this is before the Infinity Gauntlet, I guess, as you would say. Because, <laughs> you know, he plays Thanos now, doesn't he, in all those Avengers movies or something? I yeah, don't know. and that and Cable and Deadpool. Okay, well, let's just say Josh Brolin's just one of those guys who you know who he is. Um, In this, he plays a kid called Corey who decides to head from the valley to the beaches of L.A. to compete in some skateboarding competitions. And, of course, this being an 80s teen movie, much like that Under the Boardwalk movie I talked about a few episodes back, it's a Romeo and Juliet riff, basically, because Corey shows up in L.A., gets in with his gang of skateboarding guys, has a run-in with this gang called the skateboarding gang called the Daggers, Ooh, who is like the punk rock skateboarding gang. And their leader, his name is Tommy, but he calls himself Hook. And he's played by Robert Ressler from Elm Street 2. He was oh, the cool. he was the best friend. And uh, so they're like, they have a run-in with him. And there's a funny scene early in this movie, like where the Daggers show up on the beach and there's these guys breakdancing on the beach. 
and Rustler and his cronies just start like bopping along with it. And then they like laugh at the breakdancers and Rustler looks at him. He goes, breaking is a memory. And then walks away. I'm like, yeah, fucking right. <laughs> Two years after breaking came out, breaking is a memory. I'm like, that's a good fucking joke right there. So, you know, they're like kind of the, the leaders of this area because the daggers, you don't fuck with the daggers, right? But Corey and his buddies are there and he sees this girl, Chrissy, from uh, from the distance, played by Pamela Gidley. And uh, he, he kind of like falls for her from a distance like, oh, she I want to get to know her. And of course, this being a typical Romeo and Juliet teen plot, who's Chrissy's brother, Josh? Fucking Hook. It's Chrissy's brother. Oh, of course, of course. So, yeah. so, so of course, you know, this is going to cause a lot of strife because Hook doesn't want Chrissy to be hanging out with a kid from the valley. Because, you know, fucking hell, kids from the valley, you never want that to happen. Um, also, much like Under the Boardwalk, Chrissy turns out she's just visiting from Indiana. <laughs> and she's just like that typical thing where she's in California. She's like, whoa. Everyone's so crazy here in California. It's not like this back in Indiana. So much like the Keith Coogan character in Under the Boardwalk, who is like the cousin who is visiting California, the beaches. Chrissy's visiting the beaches and she gets to see all these like skateboarder hangouts where they basically just hang out. They're carrying around their boom boxes. There's a scene where they're in a club. They're in in a club. It's all spray painted with neon spray paint. And they're skateboard dancing, which apparently was a thing. Much like in Rad, they do their bike dancing in the middle of the prom. Apparently, this is a thing, too. So they're dancing on their skateboards, like, you know, doing ollies and, like, bouncing around. And guess who's playing on stage while they're doing this? It's a fucking super early appearance of the Red Hot Chili Peppers of all bands. Really? Yeah. So it's the Red Hot Chili Peppers performing on stage while everyone's doing their skateboard dances. Hook is getting mad at, at Corey for having eyes on his sister, and they're drinking like crazy because that's what skateboarders do, apparently. So from there, it just becomes like a series of set pieces on the way to a final competition. So there's a scene where like the daggers sabotage Corey's pool competition by throwing spikes on the into the pool to make him wipe out and like you know there's a there's this really cool sequence that you and I would super appreciate cuz you know how we love movies that show like old like old New York City like old 42nd Street mm-hmm. and movies that show old Hollywood and stuff this has an entire sequence where the where Corey and his buddies are skateboarding down hollywood boulevard and like interacting with people and like doing tricks and you know they're skating along the walk of fame and by the chinese theater and all sorts of stuff like that it's a really fun sequence especially for like people like us who are big fans of seeing prior decades of these iconic areas of cities right like that's a really cool sequence um and then you know there's also a uh there's also a scene where the daggers chase Corey down, chase him down like a lynch mob while Wild in the Streets by the Circle Jerks is playing on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, fucking rights. And that's going on. And uh, they burn down Corey and his buddy's ramp. And there's a scene called The Joust where basically uh, Hook, and, Hook and Corey have to like joust each other on their skateboards and you know this movie's fucking ridiculous and it, there's a fight in a pool with silly weapons like 
like the joust is basically a fight in a pool where they have these weapons and fists. It's like it belongs in a, a post-apocalyptic skater movie, not a fucking PG-13 teen skater movie like this. Because like they're swinging around like these big sandbags on chains like maces and they're they're punching each other. I'm like, what the hell is this oh doing? There's like bonfires in the background. And I'm like, this doesn't belong in this movie particularly, but I'll take it. And then it just leads to this finale, which is called the L.A. Downhill, which is this poorly shot sequence of them racing down the windy hills outside of california like in the in the california mountains and you know people wiping out and flying at the camera and stuff and it's just hook versus Corey, who's gonna win and blah 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 that kind of stuff so this is a movie where nostalgia goes a long way because if you were to watch this movie and you didn't have nostalgia for it or wasn't aware of what fad movies were and didn't have an appreciation for 80s cornball this would be fucking mediocre as hell like it's not a great movie when it comes to plot or anything like that but like i said i love seeing the hollywood boulevard stuff i loved seeing red hot chili peppers performing in the club i loved the cheesy skateboarding stuff because in 1986 i would have been 11 years old and trying to be a skateboarder myself and failing miserably at it because i thought skateboarding was so cool um apparently tony hawk is in this in a blink or you'll miss it scene because i didn't notice him um and like it's just a fun movie and to see josh brolin in a movie like this is is weird like it's super weird it's just I wouldn't put this on the high standard I have rad on, to be honest, because I have rad on like I think I have rad on too high a pedestal. But I guess I'll find out when that 4K from Vinegar Syndrome <laughs> shows up. But it's a, this is a pretty fun movie. Like like Thrashin's pretty fun. I, I'd say Roller Boogie's better for like fatty type movies that involve people on wheels. But uh, but Thrashin's all right. Thrashin's pretty good. It's It's got enough ridiculous moments to like and and wrestler does make a pretty good bad guy in this like he kind of playing a a riff on the guy he played in nightmare on elm street 2 just that kind of like kind of a badass but also sort of sensitive at the same time like when he's out with his bros as hook he's a badass but when he's hanging out at home as tommy with his sister he's a nice guy that kind of thing and then um you know and and uh this has got brett marks in it who's actually like i think he's like uh He's a nephew of the Marx Brothers. Oh, really? And, and this is a guy who was in Under the Boardwalk as a surfer, and he had a role in all three of the Bad News Bears movies. Like, he wasn't in much, but he, I just have seen pretty much everything this guy's been in. And he's kind of like the doofus member of Corey's little group of friends who's, like, awkward around the girls and, you know, wears the fedora hat with the curly hair and tries to be cool but really isn't. He's kind of that guy. Um, okay but but it's a pretty fun movie oh and sherilyn fenn is in this like super early sherilyn fenn like pre two moon junction sherilyn fenn playing oh okay playing tommy's girlfriend who's this punk rock girl called velvet and she's pretty cool in this too um but yeah it's a pretty fun time uh i didn't know until i i uh started looking into this that that uh, female lead pamela gidley actually passed away at 52 which is kind of sad she wasn't in a lot but i remember her from a bunch of stuff she was in but she had passed away fairly young and i also discovered that the director david winters made the infamous 1988 sci-fi 
movie Space Mutiny, which if you know stuff like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or Rift Tracks or Red Letter Media or guys like that, Space Mutiny is just one of those movies that is endlessly made fun of. It's a South African shot sci-fi movie with cheap sets, golf cart chases, and Reb Brown in the lead. And that's all you need to know about Space Mutiny. And it was put up by AIP Action International Pictures on VHS back in the day, David A. Pryor's company. That being said, Thrashin' is a much better movie. I recommend this movie if you're a fan of, like, Break-In or Roller Boogie or, you know, un- Under the Boardwalk or any of those kind of movies that were pro- – or Rad – that were prolific in the 80s. It's a fun time, and it's out on uh, – it is out on Blu-ray from Olive. But, uh, unfortunately, the MGM DVD does have special features, and I don't think any of them were carried over. Like, it's got interviews and behind-the-scenes and all sorts of stuff, but I don't think that's on the Blu-ray. But yeah, yeah, I reckon I found I rec- that at Dollarama once, the the DVD, which is great. Yeah, it's called Skate Gang in French up here, apparently. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Canada, we have multilingual packaging, so they have to have the title in English, and then they have to have the title in French. And I guess they couldn't translate thrashing into French, so it's called Skate Gang. <laughs> <laughs> So so whatever, but yeah, I, I'd recommend this. It's a it's a it's a fun little time. It's a it's a relic of what it is. It's a nostalgic piece from the mid '80s, and yeah, pretty fun, pretty fun. That's thrashing. Cool. Okay, um, okay, I'm gonna delve back into the uh, Universal Vault and um, continue my uh, exploration of the classic monster movies. Um, so next up was um, Werewolf of London from 1935, directed by Stuart Walker. Um, I've never seen this one. Um, as I mentioned last episode, I haven't seen many of these, actually. Um, so it's good to finally get through them. Um, this is probably best known for being the first mainstream werewolf movie. This is uh, a number of years before the werewolf uh, with Lon Chaney Jr. that we all know and love. Um, but this uh, did have effects by Jack Pierce again, and this was an early version of the, those effects. Now, apparently Jack Pierce had wanted to make the werewolf in this movie look like the Lon Chaney version that we all know, um, but he was told by the studio that it was too much and he had to scale it back to make the werewolf look more human, uh, which explains why it looks the way it does. Anyway, the movie opens in Tibet. Um, it's got this um, scientist guy going there to try and find this rare flower, um, a wolf flower, I think it's called. Um, he finds it, but when he's when he finds it, he's also attacked by a werewolf when he's looking for this flower under the full moon in Tibet. So he gets bitten, comes back to America, um, is living a life um, where he's. Um, kind of got all these strange flowers like that's kind of his thing is he's got all these rare flowers including like venus flytraps and thing like things like that and he's also got a super hot wife um played by uh valerie hobson from bride of frankenstein um and uh sorry the lead guy is played by uh, henry hull and um you know but as the moon comes out he um turns into a wolf but uh the difference here is that this flower is uh, antidote, but it can only be an antidote for that night. And uh, the deal here is that he either has to basically have the flower antidote for that night, 
or he has to kill one human being each night he turns into a wolf. So um, kind of different than what we're used to, but it still sets up a lot of the lore of the werewolf. This movie is responsible for a lot of that stuff. The full moon, the turning hairy and all that stuff. Like a lot of that stuff that comes that we've learned to know about werewolves comes directly from this movie. Um, now, along for the ride is, a, is a, another love interest for Miss Hobson named uh, Paul Ames, played by uh, Lester Matthews. And... I, this is where I struggled with this movie a bit because Valerie Hobson's character in this is this young wife to Henry Hall, but Henry Hall's a bit of a stick in the mud. He's, you know, well, obviously he's worried about turning into a fucking werewolf, but he's also really into his work. And she's like this young wife and she wants to go and have, have fun. So this old flame shows up, Paul Ames, and she starts just hanging out with him right under her husband's nose and then just starts defying her husband and going out with this guy and that's where I kind of lost it a bit it's just I'm like how am I supposed to care about this woman if she's like so blatantly like pretty much cheating on her husband and um, I thought that was a weird angle to go with um, now I guess it was kind of different like a bit of a stronger woman than the usual damsel in distress that we're, that we're used to seeing in these universal monster movies but uh, but I thought it was a weird choice because you know again I'm, I'm kind of like struggling to about her at all i actually didn't like her at all just because of her actions we also have another scientist guy dr yogami played by warner woland who uh became famous for making the charlie chan character famous back in that era um and yeah i mean i i liked hull's performance i mean that's what's carrying this movie and uh, i thought it was an interesting take on the werewolf legend um i kind of liked the fact that he wasn't going full wolfman like um lon cheney did um it was more almost like a jekyll and hyde vibe like he would turn into this like evil guy and he'd have to go and kill someone and i thought there was a lot of mood around the the murder scenes um I thought there was a lot of um, just kind of, yeah, atmosphere to it. I liked the way that the wolf, like, was human enough to know that he had to, like, disguise himself and hide in the shadows rather than being more, like, feral, like, you know, a lot of werewolves are. Um, So this one kind of, you know, brought to mind some of the werewolf movies like Wolf or something like that where it had those human qualities to it. Um, Yeah, so I think this is... I really enjoyed this one. I think it's uh, other than hobson's character but she's still you know she's she's great to look at i mean it's one of those women from that time that just is timeless like uh, uh doesn't feel like she's from the 30s but um but uh definitely not a very nice person but uh, i i like this a lot i definitely would recommend it if you like werewolf stuff if we could do our werewolf episode uh, all over again i would definitely be praising this one as, as a really good one and you know i think one of the things people love about these universal monster movies and i haven't seen tons of them but they really fucking hold up like you know i know we talked a bit about frankenstein and dracula being a little slow and certainly the mummy but you know after you know this one and the invisible man like have been and bride of frankenstein have all been pretty fast paced and and really stand up even if you're afraid of black and white movies or anything made before like 1980 <laughs> um you know these are still good well done stories that are, are interesting and fun to watch and they're short right so um most people have probably not seen this one but i would definitely recommend it as a werewolf as a werewolf. I, I haven't seen it but i do know 
Henry Hall's makeup because I remember seeing a picture of it in like the 80s in like one of those horror books that we had talked about on our one episode. I remember seeing that image where he, you're right. It's kind of like a, a, a Jekyll Hyde thing where it's not his full face isn't hairy. He just kind of has like the chin in a way yeah. it's kind of got the hair and then he's got the fangs and I think the fangs were more prominent in his bottom teeth than they yeah. were at the top if I remember correctly from the picture I saw but yeah, uh, that's where I was feeling that the Jekyll and Hyde thing too right yeah like he looked like 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 Frederick March as Mr. Hyde yeah yeah on chain yeah like I've and seen there was that even image a, yeah and there was even a scene in a zoo in this so I can certainly imagine John Landis took some inspiration from this movie as well so Yes, yeah, definitely worth a look. And I had never, uh, other than knowing knowing its existence, um, it's kind of yeah, this is why it's kind of fun to watch these kind of sets and and sort of just watch everything and and you you know you find some hidden gems in here. And I think this could be could be one of them from this from this series. I'm not expecting as much from some of the sequels, but this is like the this is the OG werewolf here um, before the you know much more known Lon Chaney version. Well, I mean, this yes. is, this this is called Werewolf of London. Yeah. It is put out by Universal. Landis is called American Werewolf in London, and it's put exactly. out by Universal. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely some similarities for sure. Um, now, while we're on the subject of forcing our way through box sets, um, <laughs> we might as well uh, jump on to the old uh, Mill Creek uh, set that I've been working my way through. You seem to be having and, pretty good success, so now you're saying you're forcing your way through it. Well, I you was had, having You had Chano, man. You had Chano. Which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually that, that was a devil's hand. That wasn't a bad one. Chano. And, uh, and like I said before, um, Blood blood mania that was a pretty good one too okay so this one's called the madman of mandoras from oh, 19- a- aka they saved hitler's brain aka yes i was gonna say that till the end but yes that's what it is and uh um i had not seen either of these movies uh, um but i had no idea going into this that that's what this was so this is from 1963 directed by david bradley um so the movie opens with, and I didn't know anything about this, okay? So the movie opens, and it's something about this scientist. He's developed some nerve gas, and he's also developed an antidote for the nerve gas. And the scientist ends up getting kidnapped along with his daughter, and they get pulled into this this island called Mandoras, uh, or this country in South America. It's not, it's a fictional country, so don't go look it up. Guide it. And you'll be like, where's Mandoras? There is no fucking Mandoras. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so off they go to Mandoras, um, a.k.a., you know, Hollywood. And um, they meet up with some, you know, I, I will give this props. This, it did cast a lot of Mexican actors at the time, which, um, which I thought was kind of cool because so you know those um mexican actors were not getting a ton of work in mainstream hollywood well not that this is mainstream but you get my fucking drift um <laughs> there, there's a cool guy named Camp carmino who's there he's like an ally to them and they're all trying to find this doctor but what they find out is that in Manduras, the reason that this antidote got stolen and the doctor got kidnapped is because the nazis are still are still running the show and they've decided to hide out in this fictional South American country 
and their leader is actually still Hitler because when Hitler's um, bunker was bombed when when he supposedly died with Eva Braun, they went in and somehow managed to remove his head and keep it alive, a la um, the brain that wouldn't die. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it's pretty much there's like scenes of like Hitler's head, like and it's like the good old you know the old you know head through the you know the hole in the in the table or whatever yelling in german and he never actually says anything but like it'll show like this head yelling in german and then they'll they'll it has this like convenient handle on top so like they'll pick it up and they'll be running with it when it's clearly a fake head and (laughs) it was just like completely bonkers idea right the fucking germans are living there and are still being led by hitler's head but it's it's pretty nuts so from that perspective and uh I, I thought it was hilarious actually and just seeing the head like there's scenes where like they take the head in a car and they're driving and the, the head's like in the back seat and, like from like a, a medium shot like it's clearly a dummy and then they'll cut into like the actual head and he'll be like shouting i think it's like the same word over and over again and then it'll cut back and it'll you'll see it's obviously the fake head again and he's uh, just like shysta 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 <laughs> through the home <laughs> pretty pretty much pretty much and then um you know the the um the sister is she she's kind of there and she's kind of like you know she's kind of like a um, free-spirited girl so um and i don't really understand why she was there but you know she was kind of funny to watch and she's kind of just running around in kind of peril but you know it's kind of being free-spirited and coming on to everyone in sight um, the movie ends shot at where else do you shoot low budget movies in LA the Bronson Canyon and the Bronson Caves aka the Batcave from the 1960s Batman TV show and there's been countless movies shot there but it was kind of the go to place to go in LA if you wanted a cool location uh, you go to the Bronson Caves and that's where this movie ends and I thought it was a pretty fun ending actually but um, there's a Chiquita dancer um, yeah I thought it was it was decent now and the print again like mill creek this was a pretty decent full frame print um now one of the problems and i've ran into this with some of the other movies i watched is at about the uh 10 minutes before it ended i could not for the life of me get the disc to play um, oh, no matter no. how many times i popped it out and wiped it down this happened with one of the other movies so i ended up watching the end on youtube because i had to because i'm like i'm not this far in and i'm certainly not going to buy this thing but yeah, the interesting thing about this movie, and this one ran up just over an hour, but in the 70s, they took this movie and shot another like 20 to 25 minutes and added it on and renamed the movie They Saved Hitler's Brain. Um, and I don't really understand why they would do that, because it's not really a good movie to start with. Uh, but it was fine. But to add an extra half hour to this, like, yeah, it would just kill it, in my opinion. But they added all this extra footage at the beginning, and I'm not really sure why. Um, you seem to know this movie right away. Have you seen that movie? I saw it a long time ago. It's one of those movies, much like um, much like Space Mutiny, that has been done on like Mystery Science Theater and riff tracks and all that. And I find the story behind this movie pretty fascinating because I I think it was made by like some like university film students or something if if i recall correctly 
Yeah, I know the director didn't really do much else. And um, yeah, even the actors, like I didn't really recognize anybody in this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just a total mystery to me why you would decide, oh, let's take that movie that was kind of bizarre to begin with and let's add on 20 minutes of extra footage. I mean, I can understand a movie like, um, I know Fred Olin Ray did that with um, that one about the fucking chick that turns into the wasp. What was that? Evil Spawn or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that had another version where they did the same thing. They got different actors and like put this completely different backstory on. But I, I just never really understand it. I find it kind of like taking... It's like Lucas taking Star Wars and adding new footage. Like, what's the point? Or like Ozzy re-recording like Diary of a Madman with different musicians. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Or Suicidal Tendencies re-recording their first album like 20 years later. Like, yeah, that made no doesn't sense. sense. But like this one too. Like, I'm just like, why Who? Why would you bother? Like, But they did. And it became this kind of cult classic the, they saved Hitler's brain. Now, I certainly am not a fan of riff tracks or mystery science theater, and I don't think I would ever watch anything that either of those people have done. But, uh, but I guess if you're into those things, it does seem right for the picking. But uh, this early version, with it being just over an hour, I thought it clipped along pretty well, and um, I wasn't bored, that's for sure. And it was certainly entertaining once they introduced Hitler's head. But I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't want to watch another half an hour of it. That's for sure. This is also one of those ones I remember from back in the VHS days when um, Rhino Video was around, Uh, where they would put out all these kind of 60s ones and they'd make like these lurid covers and they'd be like all uniform, like this blue cover with like a TV screen on it. And you'd be like, okay, I got to rent this. So that's how I saw this. This and Terror in the Haunted House, I think I got the same weekend. (laughs) Yeah. And Terror in the Haunted House was that 50s one where it said it had subliminal messages in it, but Rhino went and they put subliminal messages saying, rent Rhino videos every day and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the guys at Rhino, man. They put out some pretty crazy stuff, that company. Um, But yeah, I don't don't know, man. I don't know what what else to say about this one. Um, But it wasn't... it was a complete shit show, but it was certainly a misleading title and a misleading poster, and everything was misleading about it. But um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the Hitler head part was uh, worth the price of admission, and I, you know, it wasn't. I don't think it was as bad as. You know, it's not one of the worst movies ever made or anything. It was entertaining enough, you know what I mean? Which is also always the worst. But but this set having to force you to go to YouTube more than once is not a good sign so far. It's not a good sign, but you know, I, I think I'm through the kind of older oldies now. Like, um, and you know, I've, I'm kind of glad. I mean, I did discover a couple of good ones so far, but uh, um, but I think I'm more into the more modern stuff after this for for a, a bit of a run, and then I, then it goes back to like the 30s or something. So who knows what the hell's gonna happen, but. Uh, yeah, an interesting, uh, interesting thing so far. And I've actually started uh, a list on my letterbox page um, of this set, and I'm going to review each of them that I watch. I, I, I guarantee, I guarantee you, White Zombie with Bella Lugosi is somewhere in that set. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Or, or the Bat. One of those two. One of those two. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well. Um, <laughs> Let's keep it 60s, 60s sci-fi horror kind of thing. Uh, 
I, I really liked the line MGM did uh, on DVD called Midnight Movies. And, uh, you know, a lot of those movies are now having a second life on, on Blu-ray thanks to people like Shout Factory. And, and, like, all those titles seem to have been farmed out to uh, to HD versions. But uh, I watched the good old DVD, and I was like, I don't know why, but I was in the mood to watch this. And that's a little movie that I like to call X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes from 1963, directed by Roger Corman. A movie that I had not seen in a long time. Um, so this is a, an interesting one because this is like when Roger Corman, he had, I think this is just after he'd finished making his Poe movies, which I know you've recently watched, or mm-hmm. in the middle of making the Poe movies, uh, made for American International, um, starts with a close-up of a severed eye for about two minutes before it's dropped into a beaker and you're like, okay, so this is what we're getting into. Introduces our main character, played by Ray Milliant, who I like Ray Milliant. I mean, I'm pretty sure you like Ray Milliant. I mean, you you talked about uh, Panic in the Year Zero recently, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like him in Cor- uh, Corman's version of the uh, premature burial that he made in 1962. So he, he's a pretty fun kind of... He was kind of like a culty actor, but he also was kind of a serious actor sometimes too. Uh, he's the main uh, doctor here and he's, he plays a doctor and we meet him in the opening scenes, getting his eyes examined by one of his doctor friends. And he goes into this big long rant about how we only use 10% of our vision. So there's 90% there that we're really not seeing. We're not seeing the whole universe for what it is. So, you know, he's, you know, that typical mad scientist kind of thing where it's like, we're not reaching our full potential. Luckily for you, I'm doing an experiment that will help us reach that full potential when it comes to our vision. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, Goes into this experiment with a monkey, which gives this hint of, having x-ray abilities but ends up dying and of course you know if if you're doing if you're a scientist and you're you're experimenting on animals and the animals die your first thoughts something could be like fuck i gotta do this on myself because you know <laughs> if that animal died i i gotta do this on myself so he's also having issues getting funding for his experiments because everyone thinks he's full of shit basically they're like ah you you're not you're not going to be able to make it so we're our visions better. Like we, we're not going to be able to see the future any better or see whatever. So he's like, I'm going to try this serum on myself. I've called the serum X because that's the title of the movie. That's not what he says, but you know what I mean? So he takes the serum and he drops it, puts a couple drops in his eyes. And then he starts having these like visions, like just, just these really mild visions. Like, he gets x-ray vision, basically. He's like, ooh, I can see through paper. There's a blank piece of paper on top, but I can read what's underneath. Or, oh, I'm at this party, and all of a sudden, everyone has no clothes on because I can see them naked. You know, this is like fantasies from the back of comic books when you were a kid where you could buy the x-ray specs for a dollar or whatever. That's what or this replicator. movie is. Replicator. Or what? Replicator. Yeah. Well, I think this is a bit more classy than Replicator, Josh. <laughs> no, no, not not abundance boobs like Replicator, but you know. Anyway. I was supposed to reach out to that director, remember? I forgot. About that. Oh, you sh- you should do it. Um, 
so you know he's he sees through clothing and he's he's seeing through paper but he's super rushed to get results because he's like i'm gonna lose my funding but also now that i've got a taste of my experiments kind of working on me i gotta find out more so he starts like totally like dosing himself with his drops as much as humanly possible which leads to this kind of subplot about him sort of being a drug addict to his own serum basically so from there um you know he's at the party he sees the dancers naked he's flirting with the girls or whatever um and then he just he he gets in fights with other doctors like this doctor's like oh i need you to look at this patient i've diagnosed him with this and he'll go in and use his x-ray vision be like no you're wrong you didn't you're not seeing the right thing so he'll like push the doctor out of the way during the surgery so that he can like do the surgery or whatever and then you know another thing happens like an accident happens involving his vision that sends him on the run so now you've got ray million with x-ray vision on the run because he's done something bad and i really like up to this point his x-ray vision was like kind of this day glow eye shape around the edges of the screen so it's like this shade of orange and the shade of yellow and it looks like an iris and it's over top of the screen when he's having his visions and it's a pretty cool lo-fi special effect like i'm like oh that's pretty neat the way they did that so he goes on the run and where does he end up josh he ends up at a carnival because that's what people people do when they're on the run and that's what people do when they have x-ray vision they end up at a carnival so he's at a carnival and at the carnival is the barker played by don rickles and don rickles is fucking slays in this movie like don rickles is a comedian who i don't really care for that much because i find his humor is just like he he gets humor out of calling people hockey pucks and stuff like i don't find him that funny but he slays in this movie as a carnival barker he's such a sleazeball and he's just out to make money off of ray million because he's like oh we're gonna put on a show and you're gonna come in and people are gonna sit in the audience and they're gonna write down their thoughts on this card and you're gonna be blindfolded and you're gonna tell people what's on these cards because you have x-ray vision basically right so this is what he does. Sorry, I can't imagine anyone's ever said Don, Don Rickles slays. Slays. <laughs> it's like me saying Terry Gar, man, and like way back in episode four or five or whatever it was. Don Rickles fucking slays in this movie. Sorry, I was wondering why you were laughing to yourself over there. But anyway, so he's at this show, doing the thing where he's reading the cards through the uh blindfold and there's a couple of skeptics there and what's awesome about it is this these spectac- skeptics are played by t- two unbilled actors one of them is jonathan hayes who wrote corman had star in his version of little shop of horrors in 1960 and the other one is our man dick miller who of course right. was in bucket of blood among other things and they're the non-believer skeptics and i had so much fun seeing them in this movie and i had so much fun with the fact that ray million's character was called mentalo because he can see into the future he can see your future and everything so then from there it's just you know rickles and million playing off each other and i thought it was really fun and then you know a stop in vegas to play the card tables using his x-ray vision a car chase where and then his eyes going all black as he's being driven mad by the end of the movie and i really enjoyed this one man like i don't know if you've seen it but um yeah 
I, I thought this was like this was a movie I kind of like dismissed when I was a kid because I was I, like I, I don't I don't have good memories of this one. But. Yeah, like I dismissed this when I was a kid, but I was watching this recently. I'm like, this is a really fucking well done movie. Like I think Corman really had a great handle on how to make classy movies for no money. Like his Poe movies, like you said, they look really good and they were made for no money. This was made for no money, but it it does these lo-fi effects that work. It's got a solid performance from Million in the lead. Uh, it's got – it's 79 minutes long and they pack so much into the story. Like the story is so compact but works because it's so fast-paced and it's so – it spells out everything so good that you're just like, yeah, okay, I get – where this it's got a, a start a finish a middle goes on the path and and delivers what i want like i wasn't expecting him to go from this to this to this to this by the end of the movie and it's got a really great great finale like the very final shot of this is one of my favorites of any 60s movie so yeah mm. i really was blown away by this like i wasn't ex- sure what i was expecting but I was pretty much won over in the first like 10, 10, 15 minutes of this. And yeah, I, I highly recommend this X with the men with the X-ray eyes. It's uh, definitely a hidden gem, I think. I don't think a lot of people talk about this when they talk about Corman movies. And it's kind of a shame they focus more on the, you know, they focus more on the Poe stuff, I think. And and this is definitely super deserving of your attention. It's it's a great movie. And I really like Ray Million, too. So that helps. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know when the last time you saw this was, but you should. I think you should probably give it another check out if you're going through these Corman movies because this is definitely like jumped to like high up on my favorites that he actually directed for sure. Yeah, I remember seeing this in like uh, one of those books I had, like the horror movie book or whatever, and um, and um, the images of I knew of this movie, and I remember I remember being disappointed. Now, I didn't know Ray Milland at all. Like, I know he was in, like, Frogs and a bunch of 70s schlocky stuff. This was right around Panic in Year Zero and Premature Burial. I think before that he was in, like, a bunch of other stuff, like Hitch. Like, I think he was in Dial M for Murder or something. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, Ray Milland's just one of those names that you just kind of know. But um, I don't know what it was with this movie that I didn't like. But, I, yeah, obviously I should do a revisit. At this point, did you watch your old MGM disc? Yeah, I watched the Midnight Movies disc, and the quality is perfectly fine, because I know that, I'm pretty sure, I think it's Olive put this out on Blu-ray, and the MGM disc has a Corman commentary, and it's, knowing Olive's track history, it's probably not on that Blu-ray. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, you can get this for pretty cheap, and I definitely pleasant pleasant surprise this is the movie i enjoyed the most out of everything i'm going to talk about this episode i super highly recommend this one is it color yeah it's in color okay so all you black and white haters don't worry (laughs) (laughs) okay well i'll have to give it another revisit i'm not sure you know and you know sometimes movies can just be that mood thing and uh you're just not in the right headspace and um yeah, maybe that's what happened, or maybe I just had these expectations based on these images, you know? Well, and I also think that when I first saw this, I was, like, really young. So I was, like, not really... I didn't appreciate certain things as much as I do now, I think. Like, I was just like, where's all the action? How come this isn't happening, right? Like, oh, this is cheesy. It's, like, it looks so old, right? Like, 
when you're growing up in the 80s, a 60s movie, you're like, oh, gross. You know, I think that was kind of it. But now I'm just like, wow, that's that's a really good flick. So, yeah, I definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. Nice. Well, I had a similar experience happen um, because I had a movie that I watched a while ago and didn't really dig it. Um, but I picked up the Kino Lorber Blu-ray and thought, you know what, I'll give it another shot because it has, I don't know why, it's sort of been coming up a lot um, in um, just movies I've been watching and kind of actors I've been following and this movie just has been popping up over and over in their filmography so I decided to give it another shot and that's a movie called Across 110th Street from 1972 Um, so this is a I mean it's kind of known as a black exploitation movie but I don't know if I would totally say that and I think that's why I didn't necessarily like it because when I was getting into black exploitation movies I mean a lot of what I was liking was things like Friday Foster and Foxy Brown and Coffee and Hell Up in Harlem and Black Caesar all those the Mac Superfly which all had a real kind of B movie kind of almost comic booky tone in a way uh, with you know really over the top dialogue and action sequences and um, this one felt boring to me now looking at it again um, now um, now Barry Shear first of all he directed two 60s movies that are two of my favorite movies like definitely like probably well one, one of them for sure would be on my top 20 the other one would be on like my top 50 and that's wild in the streets and the todd killings which are both awesome and i didn't put together that he directed this so um it was kind of cool to figure that out as i was researching the other thing about this is this is more of a cop drama like a cop thriller than a black exploitation comic book right um so it opens with the famous theme that we you know know and love from watching jackie brown mm-hmm. um, this is based on a novel it opens with this crazy massacre scene where there's this deal going down with the in Harlem. Um, the, so 110th Street, just so people who don't know, in New York City, 110th Street is the divider between Central Park and Harlem. So that's kind of when you go over 110th Street, then you're in, you know, kind of the bad neck of the woods, particularly in, in the early 70s. So there's a scene in Harlem where these um, these white uh, mafia dudes are there with some some black guys and they're in this apartment and they're counting all this cash and then these two black cops come into the room and one of them's holding a machine gun and he's like basically they're like game's over you guys gotta give us all this money and one of the mobsters goes for his goes for his gun and the one of the one of these uh, cops just blows them all away just machine guns them all down and it's pretty intense like you're like holy shit and then there's this this crazy getaway sequence that happens with antonio fargus aka huggy bear from uh starsky and hutch at the wheel and um yeah it's it's like really sets the tone you're like oh my god that was pretty crazy that these cops just killed these mops mobsters and just took off now of course it's revealed that they were dressed up as cops and they were like pulling this um pulling this heist but a pretty crazy scene. Then we're introduced to Anthony Quinn from Guns of Navarone and Zorba the Greek and many classics. He's this old grizzled cop who's like 
kind of a you know seems like kind of a drunk and seems like kind of not really by the book and he's put in charge of the case but before you know it he's also introduced to Yafet Kodo who's this young hotshot black cop who um is basically Quinn's told that you have to like kind of let this one go and let Yafet Kodo take the reins so we've got that instant kind of like um you know problem between the two cops where the older cop and the younger cop um, are at odds with each other but have to work together on the case and this is certainly not a buddy cop movie by any stretch these guys do not like each other for the duration of the film but they do have to work together and this yeah Koto is fucking awesome in everything he's in um, this being no exception um, so it's basically about them trying to track down these got these uh, cop killers because uh, when the guys are making their getaway they beginning they also kill some cops so it's basically about Yafakoto and anthony quinn trying to find these guys meanwhile anthony franciosa from uh, tenobre is there as well he's like he's one of the lead mafia guys he's also trying to find these guys because they took his money as a mobster um so it's all these guys are trying to find these these uh three guys that pulled this heist now, what I thought was really interesting about this movie is it really gives depth to the guys that pull the heist, particularly the main guy, um, Jim Harris, played by Paul Benjamin. Um, this guy um, is clearly a bit of a sociopath, but it's really interesting how this kind of puts his reasoning behind doing what he had to do um, to light. I mean, a black man that's been in prison with a disability in the early 70s in Harlem probably doesn't have a hope in hell of doing much with his life other than doing something like this to try and have a better life and I thought it was really interesting that they're putting that type of message in a character like this that um, you know normally would just be your typical villain but this guy I found you know, there was a lot of stuff going on with this guy, and I actually felt for him, even though he was clearly a very, very, very bad guy. Um, and I thought that was really cool. And as well as one of his partners, I didn't get the guy's name, but same thing. Like, this guy, you know, clearly got in over his head. Now, Antonio Fargus plays his usual shtick. He's usually kind of that mouthy dude. Um, and this guy, um, you know, takes his money and he starts hiring hookers and stuff and he's basically leads to their downfall but um but these other two characters very very interesting i really like the relationship between kodo and uh quinn um uh paul benjamin's girlfriend in this played by norman donaldson was also great um the mobsters um there's also in addition to the italian mobsters there's also black mobsters led by this guy named doc played by uh, Richard Ward, who you might know from uh, as being Steve Martin's father and the jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a sidekick named Chevy, played by Gil- Gilbert Lewis, one of the greatest. Uh, this guy was an awesome, like, um, like lead henchman dude, really stood out, really threatening kind of guy. Um, also, some of the other characters that pop up, Gloria Hendry and Arnold Williams, who are both in Live and Let Die, show up for a few minutes as well as Burt Young, who went on to be in, in uh, Rocky and, and, and its sequels. But um, yeah, I really like this this time around. And the first time I did not like it at all, but it's all about expectations, right? If you're expecting Foxy Brown, this is not that movie. But if you're expecting a, a solid 70s, you know, intense, gritty cop thriller, this is 
perfect. And it's fucking rad. And they shot this whole thing in Harlem at the time, which is crazy when you think about it. And when you're looking at the street scenes and stuff, it, it looks like, you know, you hear about Harlem. And even now, like, you know, it doesn't look that scary, but fuck, back then, it was scary. And the fact that they shot this there is, is nuts. And, um, and, and it really kind of captured the whole essence of Harlem. They used some new cameras at the time um, and were able to get in really tight on, on conversations and in tight places. But they're like running around in tenements and uh, there's car chases and you know you see Central Park, you see a lot of outdoor Harlem. Um, yeah, this is a really great time council, but a really fucking well done movie with a hell of an ending. So um, totally, highly recommend it as well. And one that I didn't like the first time around either. I just sort of kind of, you know, passed by it on the, on the first look and uh, on a revisit now that I'm a bit older yeah this is awesome and uh, I think deserves a much better reputation than it has Um, not a lot of people talk about this one at all but it's it's a really great movie yeah I I had no idea this movie existed I knew the song from I knew the song from Jackie Brown but I I wasn't aware it was a movie theme song and it sounds pretty damn good yeah it's a weird cover on that on the um, I know the Kino um blu-ray has to cover and i think it was the movie poster as well but the funny thing is is i don't recognize any of those people on the cover from the movie which is really strange and that scene never happens in the movie hmm. so it's a really strange cover i was trying to like figure out like what the story was behind that cover but i couldn't find it like Kodo and uh, quinn aren't on the cover nor is <laughs> nor is um Paul Benjamin, or even Chevy, or Richard Ward, like it's just so strange. Or Francios is not on that cover either. It's re- really weird, but I still think it's a really cool shot, though. But yeah, this is a fucking cool movie. Now. Yeah, it sounds it sounds pretty good. And while you were talking, I looked up those other two movies from this director you talked about, that uh, Wild in the Streets and the Todd Killings, which I've never seen either, and they both sound pretty good. So I might have to track down all three of those movies actually. Because I know yeah, well, that, I know Wild that Wild in the, Street, in the Streets is on Midnight Movies on a double feature with Gas by Roger Corman. Yeah, I think it's a little hard to get now, and the Todd Killings is like fucking impossible to get, like as far as I know. Oh, is it? No, Todd, I, Todd Killings is on Warner Archive. Oh, is it? Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. And uh, I think Wild in the Streets was put out on Blu-ray by Olive. So you yeah. know, we're not uh, big. You, have you, so Wild in the Streets, if you don't know, it's about this rock star who becomes, like, president. He yeah. eventually works his way to become president and then puts, like, everyone over, I think, 30 into internment camps and makes them <laughs> take LSD. It's yeah. pretty awesome. It's yeah, yeah. Great music. I found the soundtrack when I was in San Francisco one time. I was so excited that I actually found the soundtrack in San Francisco. But anyway, back to Across 110th Street. If Even if you've seen this before and didn't like it, um, maybe try it again. And um, definitely, if you're a fan of cop thrillers like I am, it's to- so it's like a must-have. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to try and track this down too. You said it's out on Kino Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, I'll wait for them to have a sale and then I'll pick it up if it's on sale, maybe. But yeah, it sounds. Yeah, it's bare bones. No worth it. I mean, Yafikoto is worth it alone. Yafikoto. He's like another never bad guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he's the he's the. Uh, He's the male African American version of Jennifer Jason Lee. Never bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about another '60s movie. Um, and this is one that 
I what's knew going it. On with you? I don't know. Uh, this is <laughs> this is this is what I knew about, but I was kind of like. You never watch old movies. I, I do some sometimes. Um, so this is one that I, I kind of knew about. Like I knew of its reputation. I watched the Criterion DVD of it for crying out loud, and I wasn't sure what to think. And it's a movie from 1966 called Tokyo Drifter, uh, directed by Seijin Suzuki, yeah. who I know has a couple of his movies are out on Arrow Blu-ray, Branded to Kill, and. Uh, Detective Bureau 2-3, Go to Hell, You Bastard, Go to Hell Bastards. I know those are both out on Arrow. And uh, all I really knew about this movie was that it was like one of those stylish kind of 60s Japanese, um, you know, kind of James Bond's Bondy type movies. But it was also a Yakuza movie. So I was like, that's all I knew going into this. So I was like, OK, I'm willing to give this a shot. It's like 82 minutes. It looks like it could be fun, and uh, I'm in the minority on this that I didn't really like this, to be honest with you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but... I haven't uh, seen any of Suzuki's movies. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm in a minority on this, and I'm going to tell you the reason I'm in a minority in this is because this is a movie that is totally style over substance. Like, there's so much in this. Stylistically, this is a fucking amazing movie. Plot-wise... I didn't like it because I found myself constantly confused about what was going on. I find that the plot was super thin at times, but then also way too elaborate at times. It didn't flow very well. Like things happened that I'm like, well, why did that just happen when this just happened earlier? And I don't understand what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. And even Suzuki himself has said in interviews like, yeah, I didn't really care about plot that much. Like, even with Branded to Kill, which is supposed to be another one where it's, like, very surreal. It's supposed to be, like, a surreal crime movie, like, shot in black and white and not make much sense either. He was kind of, like, he was a for-hire director who was just, like, I'm just going to go in there and try and make these crazy visions based, hung on this plot, this plot. But I don't really care about the plot that much. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's kind of obvious from this. So, basically, what this is is... um. It opens with this really stark black and white photography of our main character kind of walking his way down this this um, railway yard. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. Like, it's just him black and white wearing his suit and tie because in these Yakuza movies, they all were super well dressed and everything. Right. And he's he's his name's Tetsu and he's played by Tetsuo Watari, who I found out is he this was only like his second acting gig, but he was also a singer back then he was a popular singer at the time and uh so he's you see him wandering along and you find out that he's a yakuza member he's part of this gang and uh his crime boss uh he wants to leave he wants to go legit like he's like i want to leave the yakuza my my boss like my crime boss guy who i work for wants to leave the yakuza too like he wants to get out of the life of crime so i'm gonna do that like i'm gonna respect the wishes of my crime of the guy i'm working for so the opening sequence is him basically getting beaten down in a train yard by these by this rival gang. And I'm like, OK, this is pretty sweet, like black stark black and white photography, him getting beaten up, mixes in a little bit of color here. And they're like, he'll be looking at something and one certain piece of the ground will be in color. I'm like, OK, this is going to be stylish if it's nothing else. So I'm like, I'm on board for this. From there, it just has a story about like. 
this crime boss called his crime boss Karada trying to go legit, but he owes this debt on these clubs that he's bought. And, you know, at the same time, a rival Yakuza gang wants to take over his businesses to profit. And they also are like, you can't get out of the business. Like Yakuza is all about honor and all about, you know, you can't get out of this. You're in this for life, basically. Right. So it's it's just him. It's just a whole bunch of double crosses, a whole bunch of Tetsu having to come to the um, come to like the defense of his boss and also like fight off these other guys who basically want to kill him because he wants to go straight. So it's just him kind of drifting through these set pieces. Um, So, you know, it's got like this really cool scene at this place called the Manhole Jazz Club where it's all like art deco and it's just people dancing in shadows. And that's where the the main villain has his office up in the window, up in the up in the club's upper levels. And that's a really cool art deco scene. And, um, you know, it has all their fancy suits like Tetsu through most of the movie where it's this like really cool powder blue suit. With like the white shirt and the black tie and he looks just so suave and it's also got all those huge close-ups of sunglasses which like yakuza movies seem to be obsessed with where it's just sunglass close-up fight scene sunglass close-up suit yeah. sunglass close-up like constantly through this there's just sunglasses like in close-up um it's pretty fluidly plotted like i said like it wasn't the first priority. I didn't know what was going on half the time. I was just like looking at the set design like, yeah, this is the set design's rad. The costume is rad. It's got this cool vibe to it. But it wasn't enough for me. I was like having a really hard time getting into like being engaged with it. And also because the main actor, uh, this Tetsuo Watari, is just not very good. Like he's just very has no personality basically like he's supposed to be this cool guy who like no one wants to fuck with but he has no personality and like there is a a really cool scene where he's just like on his way to beat up some other guys and he's just walking through the snow singing the song i'm a tokyo drifter like and like there's all these times where people are singing songs about being tokyo drifters and he's like whistling and singing the song before he beats the shit out of these guys i'm like that's pretty cool because he's a pop star but he has no personality outside of that. And even in the like in, in the booklet that came with the Criterion uh, DVD that I was reading, even Suzuki, the director, said, I pretty much had to coax him to say his lines. So even the director of the movie is admitting his lead actor is not a really very good actor. So, you know, that, that that's not really a, a, a good sign, right? So... So like I said, it's got double crossings. It's got like a moment, just a silly moment where this gang who has samurai swords is fighting another gang who have guns. It was completely goofy, but I'm like, okay, that's okay. And it's just got like him kind of drifting between one set piece to another while there's this elaborate plot to fuck over his boss going on in the background that I didn't understand whatsoever. Um, But there is, Josh, there is a really rad scene in this where to get revenge on one of the other gang's kind of main henchman guys, he fucking steals his car, torches it, and then fucking feeds it into a car crusher. Nice. So, car crusher, number one. 
best scene in the movie. You know our opinion on Car Crushers. Best scene in the movie. That's why Future Cop, that TV show from the 70s, was watchable, that one episode, because there was a car crusher. But, but, but this is just – it's just all over the place. Like, I just – I just didn't really like it that much. Like, it ends with this really big bar brawl, which was okay, but I'm like – I wasn't really into it by that point. I just – I couldn't buy into the story at all. I was just like, I don't like the main guy. I don't really get the story. And I, it, there's just nothing here. Like, their style, it looks fucking great. But as a movie, I just couldn't get into it, dude. I really couldn't. And I know I'm kind of in a minority in this. Because when I go on Letterboxd or whatever, there's like fucking glowing reviews for this. Like, mm-hmm. glowing. But then I'm also like, well, are these a lot of these glowing reviews? I'll look at them and they will be praising what I'm praising. Set design. Yeah. Style. You know, that stuff. Yeah, it's cool. I get it. It's it's cool. But the movie isn't cool in my opinion. So, kind of disappointed in Tokyo Drifter admittedly. Um I have also seen people who are like, well, you know, Tokyo Drifter's got nothing on branded to kill. That's like, like I've seen, like I've seen that. So, not for me, admittedly, but I'm sure there's some of you out there who are listening to this that'll probably end up loving it a lot more than me. But I have a problem when, like, I like style, but I, I, I need something to hang my hat on to, and I just didn't get it from this. It's, it's a bummer. I wanted to like this a lot more than I did, and I just, I couldn't get into it. Yes. So. Sounds like the lead actor was the problem. He was pretty bad. He, I just didn't like him that much, and I, also the plot was a problem for me. Like, I don't mind there being somewhat complicated plot, but I need to be able to follow it a little bit. And this one, I just felt was all over the place. It's like I said, I think Suzuki didn't give a shit about the plot, to be honest. I think he was just like, fuck it, I'm just doing it my way. And he, I think he's, I on the interview I saw, he did the same thing with Brandon to kill and that, and the studio that made this nakatsu said they fired him like he was a like he was a he was a contracted director and they fired him because he wasn't delivering these he was just fucking doing these weird movies when they wanted more mainstream money making kind of things and you know and yeah i respect him for doing that but i just couldn't get into the movie so yeah tokyo drifter not for me but I'm sure there's some of you out there that would enjoy it. Give it a shot if you like, want to see a 60s, a Japanese 60 Yakuza movie. Like, not many people have seen a lot of those, so it was at least interesting in that respect. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, uh, my next one is I uh, decided to go into the uh, world of redemption films. Uh oh. And, <laughs> and a. And a Another foray into the uh, Pete Walker filmography, uh, and this is a movie called Schizo from 1976. Okay. Uh, have you seen this one? No, I know the box. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is a movie about schizophrenia, aka split personality disorder. My favorite. Um, so yeah, like the reason I haven't seen Split is because I don't like movies like this. Um, anyway, um, okay. So Josh's in- Josh's two least favorite things: split personalities and cross-dressing everyone. Uh, uh, yeah, that's probably 
pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so like, I don't want to see people talking to themselves for, for a fucking movie. No, thanks. Anyway, um, okay, so we're introduced to... The, the movie opens, we're introduced to this older dude um, named William Haskin. Um, he's like... Looks like something's off. He's like walking around, sees this newspaper. It says, Ice Queen to Wed. There's a big headline, Ice Queen to Wed. And it's got this picture of this ice skater woman. So he, like, fucking freaks out, takes his newspaper back to his apartment, starts, like, cutting up the picture of her, and you're like, oh, there's the schizo, yay. <laughs> um, okay, so then we cut to the ice skater herself, um, named Sam, played by Lynn Frederick, who uh, was in Phase 4, the Killer Ant movie, and uh, Fulci's uh, 4 of the Apocalypse, the Spaghetti Western. Uh, so she's this cute British chick, and uh, she's an ice skater. She's about to be married to this guy named Alan, played by John Layton. Um, she's also got a best friend named Beth, played by Stephanie Beecham, who uh, Stephanie Beecham, sorry, uh, from some Hammer, like Dracula, 1972, and in Seminoid. Uh, and she, there's this other dude kind of hanging around named Leonard, played by John Fraser from Repulsion. So we've got a pretty good cast here. Um, there's this like kind of weird triangle going on like you know Sam's you know seems a little you know unhappy but she's still going to be married to Alan Beth's like this best friend who may or may not also be having a relationship with Alan and then Leonard is this other kind of hanger on friend who's clearly got the hots for Sam so there's all these kind of like relationship politics happening and jealousy and that kind of thing Meanwhile, they move forward with the, the wedding, but um, William Haskin has decided to make his way there because it turns out that um, it's uh, Sam is his stepdaughter, and he's made his way to the wedding, and he's just but he's not really doing anything. He's just kind of like hanging around, being threatening, like she'll be driving down the street and she'll see him sort of standing on the side of the road, and, and then like there's a scene where she's having a shower right on, and um, she'll you know think so one's in the room um he actually goes to the wedding and like he has this big knife and it looks like he's he tries to wheel the wedding cake out but he gets stopped so you don't really know if he was going to do something or not um and it's just kind of all this weird stuff going on where basically Haskins kind of stalking Sam um eventually um she finds out that Sam finds out that her housekeeper is into black magic which comes out of fucking nowhere. And then there's this crazy seance that the housekeeper takes Sam to. And I wasn't really clear on why, but they end up going to the seance. And it's like this completely, like, no real reason for it to be either crazy seance in the middle of the movie where, like, someone's eyes pop out and shit. And you're just like, oh, my God, what's what the fuck's happening? But, yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then there's all this, like, giallo stuff going on where all these... You know, people start getting murdered in, like, giallo-style ways with, like, a lot of style and, like, you know, black gloves and strangulations and someone gets beaten with a hammer. And um, and then and then it kind of comes to an ending that I uh, wasn't totally expecting. So I thought this was pretty cool. Um, it was much better than Frightmare, which uh, is the only other Pete Walker movie I've seen, which I did not enjoy at all. Uh, he does seem to at least in these two movies, does seem to like to cast, like, older characters and um, 
Um, I, I guess I kind of, after seeing Frightmare, I wasn't as shocked with that, knowing, knowing that that's kind of what he did in Frightmare. Um, so I, I was okay with it in this. I really liked this lead girl, um, Lynn Frederick. Um, she was great. She was nice to look at, and I thought she carried the movie really well. The husband kind of take him or leave him. Uh, the best friend, I didn't really understand what she was doing there half the time. But I did also like Leonard, the uh, smarmy uh, friend, because I thought he was kind of threatening in a way and, um, and just an, an interesting character to watch. So I don't want to give too much more away about this. Oh, and Sam also looked really good in a jean jacket, which is not something I've seen a lot of. But um, I don't want to give too much away about this, but I, really, I enjoyed this a lot more. It's given me a lot more faith in Pete Walker as a director. I know a lot of people really like this guy, but I did not like Frightmare at all, and this was a major step up. And uh, cool to see a you know a British sort of slashery movie that uh, for that time period that had some exploitation elements, but was still really well made. So yeah, I dug it quite a bit. So uh, I, I'd recommend Schizo, even though it's got a terrible title and it does involve my one of my most hated plot devices. It was it was not not as overbearing as it has been in some movies, like um, like The Tenant, for example, and like um, fucking Split. <laughs> yeah, th- this is one I always kind of, I've always avoided because I remember the VHS box back in the day just being like a yellow face with like cuts in it or something and it just said schizo and i'm like no not interested (laughs) so i mean i i'm not familiar with pete walker at all like i haven't seen anything of his and i know he's just one of those guys who's considered to be like the 70s british equivalent of like you know someone like um you know one of the guys who was making those kind of exploitation movies in in america in north america at the time like i i think he was their bona fide like this is the guy who's making those sleazy kind of exploitation movies in mm. britain in the 70s i think that was his reputation and i i don't know why i've never really watched his stuff but i think it's just because i've always been unsure about how they would work out because you know there was always the the censorship issues in be in britain and everything so you're always like well is it going to be watered down or, you know, I've always just kind of him and that Norman J. Warren guy, another mm. British guy who was making like, you know, who made like um, terror. And uh, I think he made uh, the aforementioned in Seminoid. And he made prey, which was fucking rad. Yeah. Like, like I've kind of avoided both of their, both of their filmographies, but now they're all coming out. And so they're a lot more easily accessible. So, you know, Maybe I should check them out, too, just to see what they're like. I don't know why I've always hesitated. Yeah, this one was pretty good, and I didn't check the running time before it started, and it ended up being like an hour and 45 minutes, and it actually was okay. I was okay with it. So Yeah, yeah like I do have one of his movies, Redemption, put out, Pete Walker. I have the um, Home by Midnight, I think it's called. Oh, yeah, Home Before Midnight. Or Home Before yeah. Midnight. I do have that one, so... I, maybe I'll push it up on my list and give it a spin because I know that one's I don't think that one's a horror movie I think that's more of a it sounds almost like Last Housey on the left in a way mm. so yeah I mean the thing with all these Pete Walker movies is I I haven't read any of the plot summaries so yeah. I'm going to all of these completely blind and like even when I when I pulled this out I didn't even think of it as about schizophrenia and I'm like and I looked at the cover I'm like oh fuck but it actually I, I ended up liking it quite a bit and I was 
certainly when I threw it on, I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be a torturous chore. But no, it's, it's really good. Did you buy the box set? No, no, I just sort of stumbled across them all randomly. Oh, okay. Because I know you can get two. Redemption did put out two box sets, I think, with three movies each in them. Oh, okay. Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, schizo it is. Um, let's go from that movie to a movie that fucking irritated the shit out of me. Let's let's do that. And All I right. and I swear this wasn't on purpose that I have two titles that start with this, but I'm gonna talk about the movie X Night of Vengeance right now, from from 2011. Well, because I had X the X the yeah. man with the X-ray eyes and X Night of Vengeance. So this was an Australian film from 2011. Okay. Um, like I said last, I think it was last episode when I talked about Hounds of Love. Yeah. The Australians have a thing where if they're not making post-apocalyptic action movies or Crocodile Dundee, they're fucking making fucked up exploitation-y type movies. And that's kind of what X is. I'm just going to call it X because that's the title on screen. For North America, they did retitle it X Night of Vengeance, even though, to be honest with you, there really isn't any vengeance in this movie. So... Um, so this is just like uh, Australia, a low-budget Australian kind of s- exploitation movie. It kind of reminds me of like something Ken Russell might have made, like Crimes of Passiony or something along those lines. Because this movie opens with like this f- scene where there's this veteran prostitute called Holly, played by Vivia, Viva Bianca, who is driving to this like paying job where. It's basically her and a guy, uh, a male gigolo, stripped down and have sex in front of a bunch of bored housewives. And that's the opening scene of this movie, pretty much. So it's just, you know, full frontal male nudity, um, sex acts in front of a bunch of old women who are, like, sipping wine that's being handed to them by their frickin' uh, maids. And then it's like, okay, so Holly's just that kind of a call girl, is she, like... Like, basically the kind that you would uh, get handed a card to in Vegas or something. Like, she's just like she's just like this veteran prostitute. Now, at the same time, we're introduced to a girl called Shay, played by Hannah Mangan Lawrence, who's one of those girls who's like, I just got off the bus from small town and I'm in Sydney, Australia now. I don't have anywhere to stay. I don't have any money. I'm going to become a teen prostitute. So she's a 17-year-old girl basically living on the streets, you know, becoming – she's the the fresh prostitute and Holly's the veteran prostitute. So obviously the – Shay also has a scene early on in this movie where she's has to give this awkward hand job to this old John who picks her up. And it's a it's meant to be uncomfortable, but it just comes across as completely fucking silly. Because she's like has to dirty talk him while she's giving him a hand job while he's driving, and of course they crash into a car in front of her, and she runs off all distraught because it's the first time she's had to give someone a hand job for money. So at the same time, Holly's like, "I'm quitting. I'm quitting being a prostitute. I've been doing it for so long. I've saved up enough money now that I'm going to move to France." So I'm like, "Okay, so she's going to go to France. You've got a teenage girl who's living on the streets. We've got." Some gratuitous shower scenes, like we've got all this random nudity that just seems to be thrown in there for no reason whatsoever. I'm not usually one to complain about nudity, but when it doesn't have any purpose, 
at all when it's just there for nudity's sake i'm kind of like annoyed by that like there's a scene where they go to a strip club and sure the strippers are going to be naked that's fine but when you leave the strip club area to go up to the office and you have a girl just taking a shower and then the camera lingers on her while she's standing naked in the shower after the main characters have left the room that's pointless and that's the kind of stuff that annoys me and that's what this movie does Mm -hmm. just to get in cheap nudity um and then you know there's a uh there's a there's the splits there's a bunch of times that director John Hewitt uses split screen in this movie and I and like for chase scenes or or violent scenes of that I'm like dude you're not fucking Brian De Palma just because you've made a movie with split screen action sequences and your movie is focusing on prostitutes and sex trade does not mean you're fucking Brian De Palma making body double. You're not fucking Brian De Palma, dude. You're a low budget Australian director who's only made one other movie since this. And that movie was a 2014 movie called Elimination Game with Dominic Purcell, which was a fucking remake of Turkey Shoot from 1984. 81 oh, I, ha- I have that one yeah but you know what i mean like you're not yeah. a de palma director yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so so there's this chase scene there's a scene where they're where she's hired to do this big job but she needs a second holly's hired to do this last job she's she needs a second girl she sees fucking uh shay you know almost her taxi driver almost runs over Shay and she's like, Oh, you look like the perfect girl for this job. So she's like, want to make some quick money? Come with me to this John's house. Right. She goes to, they go to the John's house. They snort cocaine. They have sex with them. They, Shay dances around topless. Holly fucking blows the, like gets, gets fucking eaten out by her, the John. And then someone shows up. They have to hide. The John gets murdered, leading to a chase scene for the rest of the movie. They've witnessed the murder, and now they're being chased. And that's the rest of the movie, basically. Like the two girls, the veteran prostitute, the young prostitute, have to go on the run from a psychotic killer, basically, is the rest of the plot. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. (laughs) This movie fucking irritated me. Like, irritated me to no end. Like, okay, it is trying way too hard to be a sleazy 80s type movie, mm-hmm. but it's just got all this unnecessary subplot. Like, it's got a subplot with Shay having a big, long conversation with a taxi driver that has nothing to do with anything particular. It's just to show you that she's really just a nice girl who wants to meet a boy. That's pointless. It's got a flashback to her being at home before she left her home where her mother's a drug addict totally pointless it's got sexuality galore that just feels completely fucking forced through the whole movie um there's a another scene in this movie where shay's decided to spend the night in a hotel she hears some guy cry she hears someone crying from the room beside her she goes over and it's a guy who's like you know having withdrawals from heroin and it just fucking irritated me because the heroin addict's girlfriend shows up they start getting in a fight they shoot up um they're it just feels so pointless and cartoony and i was fucking irritated because they're trying to shoot up and this girl who's 17 years old who comes from the little city is like 
the girl's not get, being able to shoot the heroin up through all of her scabs, and she's like, shoot it into your hand. I'm like, how the fuck would you know that? You're a 17-year-old naive girl. How would you know to shoot drugs into your hand? <laughs> like, like, come on. And and the scene just had nothing to do with the plot. I was just so fucking irritated by this point. And then the guy who's chasing them is a complete, like, psychopath. Like, he's beating people up on the way to chasing them down, and he's calling people cunts all the time. Pardon my French. And he's doing all that. And I'm like, while I'm watching him do this, I'm like, dude, you're no fucking ramrod. You're not fucking Wings, Hauser, and Vice Squad. Sorry, stop trying to be him. Like, that's the thing. This movie is so trying so hard to be other movies. Like... Like, it's trying to be Spice Squad. It's trying to be a De Palma movie, like Body Double. And it's just not working. And the acting's not very good. And I was just fucking annoyed through this whole thing. I'm like, this is such a fucking obvious attempt to be an 80s sleazy exploitation movie without understanding why those movies work. Like, this is just, oh, fuck, man. By the end of this, I was just like, I, I watched this with, with my girlfriend, and I looked at her, and the first words out of my mouth were, well, that sucked, <laughs> because I was so irritated by this. Like, I'm not one I'm not one to shy away from sleazy movies and stuff, but at least, like, have some conviction to what you're doing. Like, this just felt like a cash-in on Vice Squad and De Palma and... It had no personality of its own, and it just felt like it was being sleazy for the sake of being sleazy. You know what I mean? Where did you see it? It's on Prime. <laughs> all right. Because it sounds like it's got all the elements I would like. But it's not good. It just didn't it, – it, it's, it's, it's not good. Like, I've been watching this um, – I've been watching this thing on YouTube. There's this there's this fucking channel called Watch Mojo, okay. and they've been doing these countdown things like the best comedy movies from A to Z, and they've been doing that where they pick a movie for each letter of the alphabet, right? And yeah. they did one for thrillers, and this movie was their choice for X. And I'm like, well, yeah, because there's not many movies that start with the letter X, right? And I'm like, it looks mm-hmm. okay. It sounds okay. It's on Prime. I'll give it a shot. 90 minutes later, I was like, I'm fucking irritated, and I never want to see another movie this director made. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Not not good. Not good. It doesn't sound like a watch-with-your-girlfriend kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we we watched Hounds of Love together. We watched We've watched lots of, like, fucking outrageously sleazy movies together. We're okay with that. You know, so but it's just it's just trying too hard to be something it doesn't seem to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So X Night of Vengeance, please avoid it. All right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. This next one I watched. um, Okay, this is the one that I am super happy that I waited a long time to watch this. So this is a Fulci movie. Arrow has put out a really nice edition of it. And it's called Don't Torture a Duckling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back when I was like getting into Fulci, I mean, it was all about the gore, right? I mean, you you just wanted to see all the like different 
crazy sequences that he had to put out there in the beyond and uh yeah. gates of hell and uh, the zombie so had i watched this back then i think i would have been severely disappointed but i've also heard that this is one of the best giallos out there so um but i've never thought of fulci as a giallo guy so i don't know for whatever reason i've just always kind of avoided this one um, but yeah, really glad I waited as long as I did because I threw it on last night and holy shit, man. I think this is Fulci's best movie that I've seen. Um, it's I think it's better than all of the ones I just mentioned. I mean, the ones I just mentioned, and I've talked about The Beyond before on here. I mean, it's a great movie as a zombie, but I, you know, I think they're movies made up of set pieces with a lot of, uh, with some padding. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this one, I felt really in interested in what was going on and it's a giallo so it's like a whodunit um you know i've seen enough of these to know whodunit pretty quick but uh um but that didn't really take anything away from me so the premise is that you know we open with um we open with this woman digging up this um it looked like the skeleton of a baby so it had this really kind of like downer tone immediately then we are introduced to these three young children um they're probably like 10 years old um they're like these catholic they go to this catholic school they're smoking they're kind of badass kids and they they find out that this um this these prostitutes come up to this this house in the area and they have sex with local men in this area in this house and these these little boys go out there to like try and catch a peek they call out this guy named bara who's like looks like he has like maybe some sort of intellectual disability they call him out as a peeping tom and creates like you know bara's after them he's mad at them and stuff um and then quickly after that we're introduced introduced to um you know we're, we're starting to follow one of the kids he's at home uh, he's like his parents are like the house sitters for this like rich woman played by Barbara Boucher, um, who's introduced in a <laughs> crazy nude scene where she um, is basically seducing one of these young boys. Uh, Barbara Boucher has been in tons and tons of Italian movies, probably best known for the Red Queen Kills Seven Times, which is an awesome movie, and the recently reviewed by me, Ca- um, Caliber Nine. She was the lead in that as well. But she pops up in all kinds of these movies. But yeah, she has this crazy nude scene that's super awkward with this boy. And, um, and then after this, after we're introduced to her, these kids start getting killed. So it's a giallo with little like young boys being the murder victims, which is pretty crazy. Um, we're pretty quickly introduced to Thomas Millian, another another you know standard of these these types of films. He's always fucking awesome, and I'm loving this guy more and more every time I see him. Uh, he's this reporter who's in town, kind of trying to figure out what's going on with these murders. There's these like um, this, these unseen hands that have these like voodoo dolls of like the little boys, obviously that are being stuck with pins. Uh, there's many, many people that could be the killer in this movie, which I I love. Um, one of the characters is a witch, um, which brings a different element to it all. But this is all done in a way that i've never seen fulci act before i mean the closest i've seen is maybe the smuggler uh or contraband sorry uh, which is um is, is a movie but um 
this one, I just was right into the plot right away. I was following along with the plot. This was not relying on gore. I mean, yes, we see the kids getting, you know, we see the basic aftermath shots of them, their bodies, which is fucking disturbing in themselves. But he's not relying on crazy gore scenes. It's not relying on set pieces. It's relying on this sort of story and the mystery as to what's happening in this town and how this witch is involved, uh, which is played by Florinda Belkin. And um, it's it's really, really cool. It's fucking super stylish. The, the music's by Riz Ortolani. Um, sorry, it was shot by uh, Sergio Dofiso, who shot Cannibal Holocaust. Um, so it's got a you know really great cinematography, really great music, a really great plot. Um, uh, it will kind of leave you guessing for a lot of the time as to who's doing what and why. Um, I thought the witch angle was really good. There was a really great sequence. You know, you talked about music being used in, in films, and uh, um, and uh, there was a really great scene of a of a person being murdered um, with a car radio blasting rock music, and that was the score for that sequence, which is I've never seen before. That was super amazing. Um, some of the there are some gore effects, not nearly on the level of the other Fulci movies that I mentioned, but they're by Franco DiGirolamo, who did like Lizard in a Woman's Skin and also Contraband. So he's not known for like zombie effects or whatever, but he does good gore. And when there is gore in this, it's pretty fucking rad. Um, and this, you know, the, the subject matter of this movie is super confrontational. Not only are you dealing with kid murders, you're dealing with like church stuff. And uh, this is like, yeah far and away the best Fulci movie I've seen and you know that's saying a lot I've seen a lot of Fulci movies but uh, this one definitely deserves the reputation it, it has um, and yeah definitely one of the best yellows I've ever seen probably top five and I mean this, this is no secret to people that know the genre I mean I've known that this is a, a well regarded one I just never got around to it but holy fuck man this is this was really really great stuff so totally 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 recommend don't torture a duckling if you've never seen it if you're a love giallos like i do buy it immediately and if you like fulci but you can get past like you're not just looking for those like gore payoffs um and you want to see what this guy can actually do as a director then i highly recommend checking it out as well yeah I, I, italian movie fans it's awesome i bought the um blue underground dvd of this a little while ago like before arrow put this out because I, I've always been curious about this one, too. And I think the reason I've always avoided it is because I don't think it's a very good title. Like, the, the title of the movie just wipes some of the appeal of the movie to me. I just don't like the title that much. Like, Don't Torture a Duckling. But um, Yeah, it's a typical Giallo title with a weird, like... I mean, I will say that Donald Duck plays into the plot, which is weird, too, right? But I mean... Uh, uh, but a lot of these have these stupid yeah. titles with animal names and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have the Blue Underground disc, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you might have convinced me to move it up on my stack of stuff to watch, though. Oh, yeah, man. This is awesome. I mean, I know you haven't seen a lot of this stuff. Um, no. But, I mean, right now I'm kind of looking at this one and Ten Ombre. And, I mean, obviously Argento has, like, you know the the market cornered on the genre, but um, so does Sergio Martino, right? So like a lot of the there's just so many good ones, but this one Ten Ombre and um, 
uh, your vices unlocked room and only I have the key would probably be my my top three right now. But I I just love how Arrow's just picking these up and putting them out. And this one's a little more well known, but they're picking up some super obscure shit too, which is which is awesome. And I also picked up that Giallo set that Vinegar Syndrome just put out of like ones that I've never even heard of. So I just love this is like the genre that just keeps on giving, and there's so many, and you know all the great directors did probably five or ten of these. Um, Fulci didn't do a lot of them, but um, but yeah, this is a fucking hell of a movie, and uh, yeah, I was super into it. I'm just interested to see a Fulci movie where it sounds like a plot actually makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, it totally, it, it really, it totally makes sense. And it's also, you know, I mean, I mentioned Florinda Balkin, who was in um, Flavia the Heretic. It also has Mark Perel, who was in the the, the Psychic. Another Fulci movie that's pretty good, and uh, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, the uh, Ruggiero Diodato uh, Polizio Tecci. And it has Irene Pappas, who is in uh, Guns of Navarone, another Guns of Navarone reference. But then, just for, you know, Thomas Millian's always awesome, Barbara Boucher is always awesome, and uh, yeah, like some of the stuff in this is so great. That one scene where that person gets, gets beaten with to that music is so great and the ending is pretty rad as well yeah so much so much good stuff and i don't have enough good things to say about this one well then well then let's uh let's go from child killing to uh to a bit more of a uh upbeat movie with kids shall we (laughs) let's let's lighten the mood up for my last selection here (laughs) um I decided to rewatch a movie from my youth, and it's a movie starring Richard Pryor, who also wrote the story and co-produced it. And it's a little movie from 1981 called Bustin' Loose. Um, this is a, a movie that I have fond memories of as a as a kid, but I honestly hadn't seen since. Um, in this one, he plays like Pryor plays like a small time crook. Who's who in the opening scene, he's come up with this scam where he's going to like pose as a delivery driver so that he can like rob some AV equipment from an electronic store. And it's it's a pretty fun scene because it's like prior doing his like fast talking kind of stuff that he does in all of his other movies. But because he's like, you know, has a fake invoice and the manager's like, oh, I don't see this on our computer. I don't know if I can give you this stuff. And he's like, but yeah, we'll give it to you or whatever. But then when. The other guy, his co-manager's like, no, we should give it to him. Pryor's like, are you being a racist right now? Is that what's happening? You know how they always do those kind of jokes in these movies? And it actually is pretty funny because I like, I like seeing Pryor in this mode as like a fast-talking kind of con man type of guy. Like, I like him in this kind of stuff. Like, you, you saw that Which Way Is Up movie. And mm-hmm. and he, I, I think one of the roles he plays in that movie is kind of the same thing, like that fast-talking kind of scam artist thing and Mm -hmm. i love it when he does this stuff because i think he's really fun when he does this stuff because like he does it's not being taken seriously so it's just like you know a lot of fun to see him fast talking and that so from there he gets caught obviously trying to steal all this av equipment and uh he ends up like being going to court and he's already got a criminal record and he's like oh crap what am i gonna do i'm gonna get in so much trouble um around the same time cicely tyson plays the uh main teacher at this orphanage that's being shut down and there's only like eight kids left at the school and she's like i need to take them 
to my my aunt owns a farm in like we're in Philadelphia. My aunt owns a farm in Seattle. I got to take them there so they'll have somewhere to live, basically. And of course, her boyfriend is Richard Pryor's parole officer. And he's like, you know what? Here's the thing. You're going to take my girlfriend and these eight kids. You're going to drive the bus and take them to Seattle to her aunt's house or I'm going to find a way that you go to jail basically <laughs> basically blackmails him to transport his girlfriend and eight eccentric kids across three to four states to get to Seattle and along the way of course the bus is a piece of shit that barely runs they run into a bunch of problems along the way he ends up bonding with the kids he you know all that kind of stuff happens in this cuz it's an 80s comedy and that kind of stuff happens but the thing is this is an 80s comedy that like could easily be a kids movie but it's not because it's restricted it's got many utterances of the word fuck in it, and it's got a scene which is prominent on the actual poster for this movie where the bus breaks down in the woods. Richard Pryor's like, I got to go find a garage to help get this bus running, but he's mad at all the kids because they've been annoying him, and he's mad at Cicely Tyson, and he's walking through the woods going, jive-ass motherfuckers, tell me what to do. i fucking show them. They don't know who I am and acting all tough. And right beside him, we see a torch and some people walking, and it's the fucking Ku Klux Klan, which leads to a big confrontation between Pryor and the Klan members. And I'm like, this is a movie that was sort of aimed at kids that has an entire sequence with the KKK that is on the fucking poster of this movie. Right. Like, on the poster of this movie, it's Pryor standing there looking like all befuddled and there's clan members behind him with their hoods where holding torches and this is the poster for a major studio movie in 1981 so wow. like they, they wouldn't make stuff like this these days obviously um so like i said it's just your typical thing it's your misbehaving delinquents only the early 80s could deliver because they all have like you know their eccentric things like there's the one girl the asian girl who she was a prostitute when she was a young girl so now she's trying to hit on Pryor's character because that's all she knows and there's the other kid who like doesn't who needs a father and he's kind of like you know falls in love with Richard Pryor and wants him to be his new daddy. And there's the kid who's the pyromaniac who has issues because his family died in a fire, so on. And so there's the blind kid who is always like getting into trouble because he wants to drive the bus and he wants to do all this stuff, but he can't see. So it adds, leads to humor because he's blind. So it's like all the stereotypes you'd only see in an eighties comedy, basically hell. There's a fucking scene in this movie where he plays strip poker with the kids in a hotel room. Like, oh my God. he's like, he's like, he's like, oh, you guys need something to do here. Here, we'll do something. And he's like, like see him shuffling the cards. And he's like, we're going to play strip poker. And I'm sitting there going, what the fuck? <laughs> you, you just said to a group of eight year olds that you're going to play strip poker. What the fuck is going on right now in this movie? I'm just like, this would not happen in any movie made outside of that, this decade. <laughs> so that happens. The scene with the KKK stuff, I thought it was pretty damn funny because, you know, of where it goes and just Richard Pryor acting all like tough and then the clan shows up. Pretty funny stuff. 
So, w- what's really weird is that there's a kid in this that's a pyromaniac who's always causing fires. But when I looked into this movie, this movie was being filmed when Richard Pryor had his free basing accident and set himself on fire, and they had really? to sh- and they had to shut down production while he recovered. So that is fucking crazy right there. Oh, like it's... like they literally had to shut down production cuz he had he set himself on fire. Like yeah, and there's never... a and there's a kid in this that is obsessed with setting fires. I'm like, "Oh my god." Um wow. which would which would explain why this is credited as, as being directed by Oz Scott, but uncredited on IMDb as Michael Schultz who directed Car Wash and Cooley High and other things like that. Um, I think he might have come in after the accident and just done pickup shots and everything to get the movie completed and into theaters. That's what I think probably happened. But um, in the last third, this movie kind of has Cicely Tyson's character having to make like some money. She has to make so much money or else the kids will have nowhere to stay. And it just gets this – it gets really like syrupy and schmaltzy and it has a scene where he's dressed as a cowboy trying to like scam money out of this pyramid scheme. And it just felt so out of place with the rest of the movie because it's really slapsticky and like prior putting on a southern accent and everything. And I just didn't think it really gelled with the rest of the movie. But apart from that, I thought this was still a pretty enjoyable time like i always like richard Pryor. like even in the worst movies he's still there's still something like even in superman 3 there's something likable about richard Pryor in that movie even though we all know superman 3 is not a very good movie like yeah. but but i mean i i thought this was a pretty pretty fun movie and uh i thought it worked for what it is it's quick 90 something minutes long and you know i like kind of kids with i like movie like comedies with like these this adults who have to look after all these groups of like like bad news bears where you have to look after all these like you know messed up annoying kids and i like those kind of movies i still think they're kind of fun and having prior in the lead is is great and also i i read that cicely tyson who was the the female lead um she's a she, you know you know cicely tyson she mm-hmm. uh she was always would get upset on set about uh richard Pryor swearing a lot so he always so they so they made that into a joke in the movie where um, anytime he'd go to swear she'd get upset at him and he had to come up with an alternate alternate word and uh, I, that joke came about because when the cameras were rolling she would get super upset at him for having a foul mouth so I thought that was kind of funny too but um, uh, I, I liked Bustin' Loose a lot I still liked it uh, I I liked it more than my other 1981 revisit I made recently which was the incredible shrinking woman with lily tomlin Mm -hmm. which i I bought both of those around the same time and uh yeah it's a fun time uh surprisingly i found out that it was spun off into a tv series six years later in 1987 that ran for 27 episodes starring jimmy walker of all people who jj walker jimmy walker jj dynamite yeah so um really bizarre that they spun this movie off into a, a tv series as well um but yeah busting loose it's still pretty fun and it's readily available it's it's kind of like um you revisiting dc cab 
yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. It's just it's just one of those like early '80s relics that you can pop in and still have a fun time with, even though you know that a movie like this would not fly these days at all. Is this like peak prior time? Like I know which way is up was before he became like big, but I know there was that period in the '80s where he was huge. Um, this would have been right before the toy. Oh yeah, okay. So he he made this, and then he made the toy, and then I think it was Brewster's Millions after the toy. So this was and all the Gene Wilder movies were around then too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, Silver Streak was in the seventies, and then I think Sinewy Hernuyu was late eighties. Yeah. So this was no, this was the year after Stir Crazy with Gene Wilder, and that was yeah. the one that kind of broke Prior more. Like he was he was pretty big name when this movie came out. Yeah. But uh, readily, easily, cheaply available on DVD. I think it's being released on Blu-ray. I would say not worth probably paying the twenty-some dollars for the uh, for the Blu-ray. But if you spent five bucks on the DVD like I did, certainly worth it. It's still a lot of fun. Boston nice. Loose, 1981. Josh's Beaches Adventures. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's what time it is. Um. Okay, so I decided to watch one that I swear Troma had put out, but um, the one I have is, um, shit, I forgot to write down who put it out, but anyway, it's uh, Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town from 1989. Oh yeah, that was, that was put out by New Line on VHS. New Line, that's right, yeah. Uh, directed by Dan, House, Dan Hoskins. Okay, so this one I don't have super fond memories of. I have seen this before, and yeah, I remember me either. being, yeah, I remember, I remember it being this great title, and I remember being like kind of disappointed. But um, anyway, there, there was in the box going, "Watch me again, watch me again, or get rid of me." So I'm like, "Okay, I will." Um, <laughs> so I, I snagged it. Um, so the opening credits were rolling. It was. Uh, um, I saw a credit go up saying the effects were by Ed French. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it's got all these cool gore gags that I don't remember. Because Ed French did, like, Sleepaway Camp and um, Blood, know, Rage. Blood Rage. Yeah. Creep Show 2. So I'm like, okay, well, this guy knows what he's doing. So, yeah, maybe it's missing. Maybe it had all this cool shit that I don't remember. And then, you know, we're introduced to this biker game, gang called the Cycle Sluts, and they're rolling into the small town. Their whole deal is they're just trying to get laid and have sex with dudes. So they roll into this town. Um, they split up when they get to town, and basically they go have sex with dudes. Um, the leader um, is named Rox, uh, Rox, played by Catherine Carlin. Um She's she was a really good leader. She seemed like someone who should have been in a Russ Meyer movie, like kind of that over the top biker gang, you know, uh, lesbian angle going on with her. Um, but uh, I thought she was pretty good. But she did have this really weird scene where she like put a song on a jukebox and then did this like strange kind of musical dance number out of nowhere. But it was kind of entertaining. Um, I noticed David Nell showed up and he was in you know gbw favorite spring break um she showed up as a love interest of one of the biker chicks um and then you know some of the other ones that were there one of them was named jewel she was like the older member of the biker gang she was played by vicky frederick who uh, again another gbw favorite from uh, all the marbles and i don't remember her seeing her in a lot 
lot of movies, and I totally didn't put that she was in this. Um, and then we've got, you know, we've got the the black girl and the um, there was yeah a couple of other biker, biker gang members. I thought they were all pretty decent, decently acted by biker gang members, and I, I kind of enjoyed them. Um, but the problem with this is the, the zombie town part of this. <laughs> like, I guess there's some mine or something, and we've got um, what's his name from uh, Return of the Living Dead. Don um, Alpha. Don Kalfa, like he's there, he's doing experiments, and somehow like these zombies start coming out of this mine, and so like zombies are under, under overrunning this town where the biker chicks are, and um, the zombies look really cheap, and um, they don't really do much. They just sort of shamble along, but they don't really feel that threatening. Like they um, never really, yeah, like they do kill people, but I never, no one I really cared about. And, um, you know, I just thought, like, a movie with biker chicks and zombies should have been, like, super fun and super entertaining and uh, super badass. But this movie just kind of falls flat, like, no matter what's going on. Um, Billy Bob Thornton is in this. That's one of the main reasons this movie is known. Uh, He plays the ex-husband of one of the biker chicks. And there's not really a lot of drama around why they were exes. Um, like basically one of the one of the one of the biker chicks um, played by Jamie Rose, she was a homecoming queen and then she left to become a biker and then this, this came back to her town. But there's it's not really played out a lot, so there's not a lot of drama around it. Um, yeah, and then you know the movie just sort of ends with this battle between the biker chicks and the and the zombies that I just felt like had some cool moments. But I just I, I guess I just think when you have a premise like this it should be a lot better and i just being a big fan of like biker movies and zombie movies i just felt like how do you fuck this up but they they did it was just kind of kind of boring i think part of it was the lead that that girl that we're supposed to be following this jamie rose the redhead i just didn't really care about her very much and i just didn't really care about her as a hero um it was nice seeing some of these other girls there was a also a uh busload of blind kids that were, were uh, part of this as well which you know seemed right out of a trauma movie that they were probably the most entertaining part and the lead blind kid was played by Hal Sparks don't really know why I know who he is but he was uh, I know he was one of the leads on Queer as Folk but he was on a ton of reality shows in like the early 2000s um, Martha Quinn from MTV also shows up for a few minutes it's got all these like strange cameos like Earl Boone is another character actor you would know um, but just all this stuff's kind of going on and all I could think of is like why did New Line put this out like what's the what's the angle here like why did they why did they decide to put this out how did this get made like how did all these actors that get into this like why did everyone sign on to this why is Ed French involved when the zombies look shitty um yeah and i just um and why is ed gale in this and ed gale if you don't know who he is he's the, the he's a little person but he played howard the duck and um, chucky in the original child's play and he's running around and it's just like so it's all these like kind of like genre people that we know running around in this movie that really no one knows about that just isn't very fun so I just think, yeah, it's a bit of a bummer. I was actually kind of, wa- I was started watching it. And I was super bored. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember why I don't like this. Then I was like, then I started 
my mind started playing with me. I'm like, well, I should like this. This should be awesome. Like maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I should be enjoying this more, but I just didn't. I do feel like I am a little in a little bit of a minority on this. So it seems like people do seem to like like this movie quite a bit, but uh, didn't work for me. I just think it should have been way better than it was. Yeah, I so I, uh, I agree with you. My memories of this are the same. I remember seeing it and being totally underwhelmed by the entire <laughs> thing. Like I'm just like, this should be cooler than it is. It's got way this, cooler. It's got this cool title, and it's you know it should be. It's got Don Kalfa playing a, a mad scientist type or something. This should be better than it is, and it's and got the tro- a trauma name on it. So and they're called the cycle sluts. Like it should have been awesome. Like. They just didn't. Maybe they just didn't feel badass enough. Maybe that was the problem. Like, they weren't slutty enough. They didn't live up to their names. <laughs> well, they didn't seem like badass bikers. They didn't, you know, like although the leader seemed like she should have been in a Russ Meyer movie, like none of the rest of them did. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like they should have all been kind of badasses. And this, this is no faster pussy cat kill kill. Because I guess that's what I was expecting. I was expecting those girls to be fighting the tar man. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. not what this is. <laughs> Anyway, too bad, but um, that's Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town. Josh's Beatrice Adventures! Okay, another episode comes to a close, and that means it's time for the spiel, everybody. Hold, hold on a sec. I'm going to just throw in one bonus review, just because okay. I forgot about it. I was going to do this at the beginning. Okay. But I just wanted to give a shout-out to our listener, Adam. Uh, he turned me on to this uh, short uh uh, miniseries on Netflix called Into the Night, which is fucking rad. It's this uh, French miniseries about this um, uh, people are on this airplane and um, they discover that the sun is basically killing everything in its wake. So anything the ton- sun touches dies and the people on the airplane are basically racing to not racing west constantly so they're never in sunlight. And it's a small group of people on an airplane. This plays out like a disaster movie. It's fucking fast paced. It's six episodes long, and they're 40 minutes each, and it's fucking rad. So thank you, thank you so much, Adam, for turning me on to this because I would not have watched it. And also, as per Adam's recommendation, um, this comes up as dubbed on Netflix, changed language over to French, the original language. Um, you won't lose anything, but this is a bunch of well-defined characters in an action setting that's fast-paced, short episodes with a really cool premise, and it's really well done. So super check out Into the Night. Fair enough. And on that note, now I will do the spiel. And the spiel is as follows. Um, Join our discussion group on Facebook and uh, tell us what you've been watching or just comment on our ridiculous posts that we throw up there once in a while. Twitter and Instagram, you can do GBW Podcast to find us. And most importantly, a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever. And also, if you like the show, tell a friend and get more people onto the GBW train. And that would be it for this episode. Anything more to add, or are we done? Well, I just think with our Facebook group, I mean, I do and I do encourage people to recommend things. I'll usually yeah. watch anything that you recommend, and um, and I would never have known about that show had Adam not done that. So, um, um, and that's where you know you can learn about things too. So please, please come to our our um, Facebook group and check it out. Fully agreed. 
And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night.